hello and welcome to Faith Backstage, where we are having backstage conversations with pastors and church leaders about faith, life, and ministry. My name is Joey. Super glad to have you guys here. Always a blessing um, getting to hang out with you guys and to uh, let you guys in on some some cool conversations that I love having. Um, I've got someone uh, that I just love getting to talk to here on the podcast today. Um, someone that whenever I run into uh, around campus, we work at the same church. Whenever we run into uh, each other, we just are we we end up on a topic immediately, and it actually kind of just happened. Um, before we started recording, but his name is Tony Bowick. Tony, thank you for being here. Hey, Joey, it's great to be here. Uh, you know, I feel a fair, feel a very similar uh, excitement when I get to run into you on campus because I know that uh, no matter what obscure or sometimes uh, weird conversation is on my mind or whatever comes up, yeah. like you always match it. You're always yes. there. <laughs> I try to. You know, yeah. it's like you're always like, oh yeah, let's let's dive into how interesting yeah. or how strange or how weird or yeah, where did that come from? And so. Uh, and so it's always fun to talk to you because I feel like there's a kindred mindset yeah. of a hunger for new, new thoughts and for yeah. learning and kind of growing, even even if it's around silly things or yeah. cultural things or serious things. Yeah, I think that's the positive aspect of the nerd. Like that is like the the positive right. connotation of nerd is like interested people are interesting. Like if you if there's a topic, if you are willing to like dive deep into it and you've like clearly like spent a lot of time thinking about like all aspects of it. That's what makes an inter- makes for an interesting conversation. Absolutely. You know, yeah. I think um, the people that I'm most excited to be around, I think it was Jim Collins that said like years ago, uh, he said, I want to be humble enough to aspire to be the dumbest person in the room. Mm. And, you know, yeah. it, like initially that doesn't sound very attractive, but yeah. for people like learner is my number one strength finders aspect, mm. you know? Yeah. And so for me, like there's nothing more exciting than being in a room full of people who know more than I do mm. and who are better at things that I'm not as good at, yeah. you know, especially things that I care about yeah. because I know that it's going to be, I'm going to learn, I'm going to grow. It's going to be a conversation that lets me go beyond where I am now. Yeah. Because the people in the room have already been there. Yeah. I forget what age it was. I kind of realized that, that it's like, I kind of looked around me and I saw people, this is sound probably going to sound a little like high and mighty, but I, I looked around me and I was like, I could, I noticed when people were pretending to know what was being talked about when they actually didn't. Mm. And I was like, I really don't want to do that. Like, right. why is there, like, why feel shame about not knowing what a word means and just asking what it means. Like you're going to learn something and chances are there's people in the room who also don't know what the word was that Mm. the person says. Like just ask what it is. Yeah. I can't tell me how many times that I, uh, that I've gotten in trouble (laughs) because I (laughs) like that dynamic Mm. Uh, because sometimes it it has just uh, led me to be less sensitive about things that might be sensitive to other people. And mm. so, like, often I'll just ask, well, why did you say that? Or why do you think that? Or, yeah. um, like, what happened in your life that caused you to to kind of react that way? Oh, interesting. Yeah. And and so, you know, it's it's like, so that hunger for understanding more about how things work under the surface or behind the scenes yeah. can sometimes be a little invasive uh, mm. f- from a standpoint of when you're used to dealing with people who aren't nerds, yes. who, who, who have a, like they have an underlying or a subtext for asking. Mm. Whereas for, I think for nerds, it's really just like, it's like hunger and curiosity. Yeah, I just yeah. want to know. Yeah, I'm yeah, not yeah. judging you for yeah. this. I'm, I'm not making a, a prejudgment about why you do that. I just yeah. want to know what is it that's motivating this? I'm fascinated. Yes. Yeah. I often I often really want to know people's ages because I mm. it, it 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 tells me so much or I, I I can make some assumptions they might not end up being correct but I can make all these assumptions about 
their cultural background, what mm. like shows or movies or music they might like, you know, culture they might have an awareness of based on their age. Yeah. You know, if they remember nine 11 or not like different, different like cultural points. For sure. I, I like to know an age because if I don't have that, I don't know what I can refer to or kind of like mm. what their like ethos might be about certain things. And so that's one of the, but, but obviously asking for an age is, can be taboo. Can be, yeah, right. That's um, a great example of and, that. And so I, I try not to, but if I feel like the person's comfortable and I will often ask. Right on. Um, I just asked uh, Rosemary at our church. I was like, Rosemary, how old, what year were you born? I just want to know. Like, yeah. I'm just interested in that. Well, I mean, that is, that's really playing Russian roulette a little bit yeah. there because, you know, on one side, like Rosemary is is incredibly kind hearted. She's like, you know, kind of a no nonsense person. Yeah. So you would feel safe to ask that. Yeah. But on the other side, like she's she's uh, she's up there in age, and so I I bet she has some ideas about uh, propriety mm. and and manners that might be a little different than you and I. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Some tab some topics to, that to us feel really harmless might feel a little uh, taboo to her. So. Yeah. I applaud your I applaud your uh, your bravery in yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so I kind of want to uh, uh, give a teaser for kind of why I'm interested in, in like talking to you so much for our listeners, um, because you have been involved in church and ministry for a very long time, but you've been involved in a very behind the scenes way. I mean, our, the name mm, of the show, right. Faith Backstage, really feels like what you have kind of dedicated your life to. And I think there is this almost like romantic view of pastors and ministry and working at a church where it's like you're praying all the time, you're just eating like crackers and, you know, grape juice, and it's it's all very holy and it's all very spirit led. And the reality of That's exactly what it's like, Joey. Yeah. 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 <laughs> the the reality of a church as large as the one where we work is that you're looking at costs to r- repave the parking lot, you know? And yeah. that's not um, uh, for lack of a better term, sexy. That's not. Oh, yeah, that's not sure. Minis- that doesn't feel it like doesn't ministry. Feel spiritual. No, it doesn't. Yeah. Spiritual, probably the better the word I was looking for. But yeah, it, it's not. It's not. Yeah, holy, spiritual, mm-hmm. like um, that kind of mindset when people walk onto a church campus that they're kind of looking for. And so I'm really excited to talk to you as someone who's really had to just deal like head on with the behind the scenes of the the challenges and, and also the joys of um, running a church and having to look at a budget that is, you know, millions of dollars and allocating funds and like all of that. Um, and how that, what I really want to get at is how that can be glorifying to God, mm. how that can be spiritual, yeah. how God can be present um, in all of that. So really excited to get to, to chat with you during this time. Well, right on. Me too. And, you know, you're talking about something that, that I am a nerd about, right? Yeah. We talked about that nerd aspect earlier. And so and so I love to talk about that kind of yeah. stuff. And and so I'm always open. And, you know, there's no, there's no question that's off the table or mm. no question that's too... Uh, sensitive, I would say. Yeah. Uh, you know, as long as we can put it in a context, which is you know honoring to to either the churches that I've worked with yes. or to the people that I've worked with. Yeah. And I know you do a great job at kind of helping protect that as yes. well. So we can learn the lesson from whether it's past mm. successes or failures mm-hmm. or just learning points, you know, with, without, uh, w- while it's still being uh, able to build up 
totally the body of Christ and the people who are really serving. So yeah. I, I love that about you. I love that about yeah. your podcast Thank too. You. So. I appreciate that. Um, so I, I always like to start with background. I like to hear just a little bit of, you know, contextualization for you and kind of how you got to be you. Um, kind of starting with early life, like what mm. faith were you raised with? Um, how was kind of faith modeled for you when you were, when you were growing up? Yeah, you know, I we uh, I came from an Italian Irish family, right? Mm-hmm. So you know, the Bowick side is the Irish side, the Esposito is the Italian side, uh, and so I, you know, I, I commonly make the joke is like, you know, there are three things that you can't escape uh, when you just break it down to its most basic stereotypes about Irish and Italian, mm-hmm. you know, and those three things are. Uh, our Catholicism, mm-hmm. anger issues, <laughs> and alcoholism, <laughs> you know, which yeah. is, and I, you know, it's kind of yeah. like one of those things like, oh, great. Well, you know, I, I can, uh, I can kind of make that joke because that was my family, both sides, yeah. you know, all three of them were there. Catholicism was a big, I went to a Catholic school, Catholic grammar okay. school. Yeah. Uh, you know, we went to mass every week mm-hmm. and, you know, so, uh, and of course family gatherings were always big gatherings, yeah. mostly around food. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, so and Catholicism was very, it was a very nominal part of that. So, mm-hmm. you know, we would say we we're practicing Catholics, uh, mm. which is, you know, where a lot of, a lot of my appreciation for, um, the iconic, the historical side of church and spirituality. Uh, I learned a lot about the history of Christianity. Uh, you know, there's a. I have a great appreciation for a little more of the traditional, uh, majestic and mystical side of yeah. Christianity through kind of my Catholic roots, right? And yeah. so, obviously, there was a a big turning point in my life where uh, you know all of the things that are very stereotypical about about living as a Catholic, which is mm-hmm. a very religious experience, mm-hmm. not necessarily a faith experience. Um, right. You know, and I, I would categorize it more as it's about the form uh, of, of spirituality as opposed to the relationship yes. uh, of spirituality. Yeah. And so, you know, there was a, obviously a big transition in my life, and it, it really centered around my parents' divorce and my mom mm. kind of getting kicked out. And, you know, there was like the... Uh, you know, the Catholic Church didn't respond well still in the 70s to, uh, to divorce and, and mm-hmm. things like yeah. that. And so, uh, you know, there was a kind of a side-taking of the Church on my father's behalf. And, and so, you know, my mom was kind of, you know, the light version of excommunicated. Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, we ended up—and so there was a really faith—a faith challenge for her, because that's all she really knew from her family. Mm. And so, you know, we ended up uh, kind of living in this trailer park— uh, making ends meet, <laughs> and uh, this church literally is in walking distance mm-hmm. uh, to our trailer park, and so she started going there, and and man, this church was really like the actual, literal hands and feet of Jesus in our life, uh, mm. in the sense that you know they did a fantastic job of of really. Um, modeling what it was like to have a relationship with God mm. as opposed to just kind of a form of worship and of, of uh, religion. Yeah. And so, you know, they, they really unfolded us. I mean, we, you know, we were coming in as kind of a problem family, right? So right. recovering Catholics, uh, super low income, single mm-hmm. mom, mm-hmm. Um, you know, had, had, had essentially divorced her husband, uh, kids who had you know, behavioral issues. Yeah. I'd just been kicked out of a cat, kicked out of a Catholic school, you know, yeah. where people send their kids to who are bad, you know? <laughs> right, right, right. And, uh, and so, and so, you know, this church took on a lot of risk to kind of love us well. Hmm. Um, but they did like, they, they just loved us phenomenally. 
uh, I ended up uh, going to school there as a little private school for a while, and the executive pastor of that church mm-hmm. uh, would come into my classroom, take me out of class, take me down to McDonald's, buy me a shake, and have conversations about how my life was going. Wow! Yeah. Like, I mean, this is—I mean, this is a big church too. This is a church of three, four thousand. You know? Oh wow! Yeah. Okay. And and so the the fact that this guy even knew who I was totally uh, identified that you know, hey, this kid. Has, is going through a rough time in his life, yeah, and I think this will make a big difference. And so, you know, when I when I think back of all of the ways that different people have invested in my life, like mm-hmm. that one is one of the ones that stands out as kind of the most impactful. Yeah, uh, and it's like you know, there's there's no there's no strategic reason why this guy did that, you know, hmm. and so it, it, it's it, but it had a huge impact on my life. And so this yeah. church really came to represent the relational side of what it means to be a Christ follower in a, in a really incredible way. Yeah. And they were also a church planting church. And so, you know, the, gotcha. the 15 years that I was there at that church, kind of growing up in my relationship with God and becoming a Christ follower, um, like they planted like 10 other churches. Yeah. Uh, and like, it was such a great model and it really impacted my uh, kind of dynamic of like, what does it look to be like a successful church? What is yeah. what does leadership development look like? You mm. know, um, you know, I had some strong opinions already about you know what what was the best model of church growth based on what I experienced in this church. You know, totally. And so you know, so that that transition in my life, and you know, it's funny my. Uh, my my actual conversion, we'll, we'll put quotations around that, my conversion experience, you know, um, where it was literally in, I say the, the front yard, but, uh, you know, we had this, we we're in this little trailer park and my mom wanted to wash a car. And so we got a hose and hooked it up. And so we're in the, in the grass in the front yard, washing the car, yeah. like one Saturday, I think it was a Saturday. Yeah. And, um, and so she starts explaining these things to me and she's like, Hey, you know who God is, you know, we've always kind of read Bible stories and we've gone to mass and yeah. uh, you were an altar boy. And so you, you have this concept of God and, but there's this whole other side to him. And, you know, she kind of explained this idea of, well, God really wants to be present in your life. He wants yeah. to have a relationship with you. And, yeah. you know, and, you know, Jesus died to forgive you your sins. You know that, but you don't have to have him forgiven by another person. Mm. You know, you can just go to him directly and he wants to be the boss of your life and yeah. uh, kind of help you understand how to live your life in the right way. And the Holy Spirit will come and live inside you and help you make decisions and give you comfort when things are tough. And yeah. like she just explained it to like, you know, it was like a, a nine-year-old. Right. Well, how old were you? Uh, I was probably about nine, nine 10, okay. somewhere yeah. around there. Yeah. And, and she said, so Jesus wants to come and like live in your heart and be the boss of your life. And I was like, hey, that sounds like when you die, you'll go to heaven. You'll spend <laughs> yeah. eternity with him. And he's with you now and he's with you later. And, yeah. uh, and, I, and I was like, hey, there's no downside to this deal. Right. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah I'm totally interested in that. And yeah. so right there with the water hose running on the grass in the front yard, we knelt mm. down by the car and Aww. she led me in this prayer to accept Christ as my as the Lord of my life. And yeah. like that was my and from that point on, I, I've, you know, I've spent the rest of my life really trying to figure out, OK, how do I make this relationship work and how do I submit my life to this and how do I grow? And, yeah. you know. And so that was like that was a super formative experience in my life, and uh, it's kind of my con- my conversion story from yeah. religion to relationship. Totally, yeah, that's really cool, and I can definitely I can understand the kind of what had to be like thrown off, what had to be kind of chipped away as far mm-hmm. as your understanding of God went. I am curious 
Is there anything that you uh, miss a little bit about the the Catholic Church and kind of that way of doing church? Is there anything that maybe we've lost in kind of the non-denominational mm-hmm. evangelical, you know, Protestant way of doing things that uh, that you miss out on sometimes? Uh, you know, I still have a you know I still have a a, a strong attraction to liturgy. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I wouldn't call it a loss, but uh, but just like you know, when everybody has kind of their native their native language, things that yeah. that impact them internally and emotionally. And and so I would say, you know, I mean, that's why I took four years of Latin. Oh, wow. <laughs> you you yeah, know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Like, I, I really appreciate the depth, uh, both whether it's the symbolism, the iconography, yeah. the outward expression of just how majestic God is, the yeah. gravitas yeah. of our faith. Uh, you know, I think that gets built in when you have something that... Um, uh, that just stands the test of time like that mm. and has a little bit more of a hard, harder boundaries around what it is and what it isn't than I think the evangelical church. And I think one of the things that has been lost for the evangelical church in you know, probably the last 30 years or so mm-hmm. uh, has been kind of that common voice. Uh, mm. Like, who speaks for the evangelical church? Like, who mm. represents the evangelical church well? You know, yeah. all 31 Baskin-Robbins flavors of it, you know? Uh, <laughs> right. and, and really, there isn't somebody, you know? Yeah. Whereas I feel like Catholicism, you know, it has kind of that uh, it has kind of that stabilizing factor of, you know, this is who speaks for what it is and what it isn't. This yeah. is who speaks for how our culture is impacted or how we're impacted by our culture. And, yeah. you know, I think that... that 30 years ago or so, the evangelical church did have that unifying factor. It did have some mm. some respected voices, not just in the church, but outside in the world and yeah. in, in the community, in our culture, uh, that there were people who spoke well for the evangelical church, represented it well, yeah. helped clarify what it was not, uh, mm. and then kind of you know gave handles to all of the different flavors of evangelicalism, like how yeah. do we kind of address these social and cultural issues? Yeah. And I, th- I feel like that's been lost, um, and I think it's really valuable. And I, you know, I don't, I don't know what to do about it. It's yeah. not like, uh, it's not like a problem to be solved. It's just, I think, something to be mourned that has just kind of passed away. Yeah, that that style. That yeah, there yeah. I I think I don't know. The unifying the- factor. Yeah, yeah. Like here are the things that we stand for. Here are the things mm-hmm. that are important to us. Here are the non-negotiables about being a right. an evangelical church in Western culture. Yeah. Well, we argue a lot about a lot now. Yeah. Like I don't know oh, how active absolutely. on Twitter you are, but I'm on like angry evangelical Twitter. Yeah. <laughs> I had to give up Twitter, <laughs> and uh, just seeing a lot of um, a lot of frustration with where we've been and disagreement about where we should go, mm-hmm. kind of in the future, um, and a lot of like reckoning with that. A little yeah, bit. absolutely. Um, but yeah, I, I kind of, I like, I don't know, I don't know if you used the word grandeur or not, but that was the word that kind of popped into mm. my head. With, I like, didn't, but that's a great word to express it. Really like, I don't know, just like that feeling of like being, like, you know, being in a cathedral, being in, you know, a place where there's just so much beauty oh, and yeah. like, majesty. My wife and I got to travel uh, to uh, Germany for mm. when she was an architect. She was still working as an architect, and yeah. um, there was a conference in Germany, and we both got to go. And we got to go to. We were just wandering around the city when we got there. It was one evening, I think it was a Friday evening. I don't remember exactly, but there was a uh, there was a cathedral there, mm. a big cathedral. The front doors were just open, and I could hear uh, like mass going on. Mm. And so we went in, and it was in. Uh, you know, it was in it was in German, mm. so we couldn't understand a lot of it. But yeah. um, 
but you know they they uh, there was a little bit of some literature there, and then they did some they sang some songs, and man, I got to tell you, Joey, like the impact, the emotional and spiritual impact that singing along, even even in German, yeah, in this cathedral together with a bunch of other believers, like mm. it, it it was just it was incredible. It yeah. was majestic. Yeah, there was an incredible grandeur about it. The whether the acoustics of the cathedral, whether it was the people singing together, whether it was yeah. the fact that you're singing something which is, you know, 600 years old yeah. and is still true personally, yeah. not just, you know, yeah. religiously. Um, like I would hold it up against any modern evangelical worship experience and say, mm. this was incredibly impactful for me. Yeah. You know, it, it hit it hit both my intellect, it hit my emotions, yeah. uh, and it hit my spirituality in, in really uh, authentic ways. Mm. Yeah. yeah. That's awesome. I love that. Um, so how long were you at the church that kind of took you in? Um, you, yeah, you so that and... was uh, almost 20 years. So, oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, from, from, the, from the early 80s yeah. uh, to almost 2000 when I, uh, when I left uh, South Carolina, which wow. is where that was. Yeah. yeah. Um, did you serve there? Were you super involved there? Uh, yeah. You know, funny enough, I, when I, you know, there's a great quote. Sorry, it's by Condoleezza Rice, but um, you know the quote is that uh, things that look impossible in foresight look inevitable in hindsight. So, so things that seem impossible when you're looking mm. forward, once mm. you're past them and mm. you look back, they seem inevitable. That's great. You, you yeah. know what I mean? It's like, yeah. yeah, gosh, there's no like this couldn't have really happened any other way. Yeah, yeah. you know. And so there's that's kind of how I feel. So when I kind of trace back, because it was never at all my intention or my life goal or yeah. uh, my expectation that I would be in ministry as yeah. a career, yeah. right? Uh, like that was never like I always knew that this church would be a central part of my life, yeah. a social part, uh, you know, a spiritual part, a relational part, uh, a serving part. But I never, I never thought, oh, I'm going to be a pastor or, oh, I'm yeah. going to work at a church. That was never on my radar at all. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, when I was looking forward, it seemed impossible that that would ever happen. Now, looking back, it seems inevitable, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, you try to trace those steps. It's like, what were the turning points? What were those small moments where it felt like a, a little bit of a new revelation or realization yeah. just shifted your whole world around you in an unexpected way? Mm. Uh, and you know, one of those was, uh, so yeah, so we were at the, we were at this church like three times a week. We were there Sunday morning, we were there Sunday night, mm. we were there Wednesday night, we were there anytime they were doing something because I mean, literally this church took in a family that was like trying to figure out what does it mean to live yeah. as a single mom with two uh, kids, uh, divorced and no money. And yeah. like, you know, it's like, okay, what, what? <laughs> Uh, kids with behavioral problems, like, what does this look like? And this church just took such good care of us. So we were there all the time. Mm. Um, and there were th- there was this moment just walking. And like I said, I don't, I don't know why, uh, you know, the leadership of this church took such a vested personal interest in us. It, yeah. it seemed like out of character yeah. uh, with a church that size. Um, but they did for whatever reason. And so... You know, the, the lead pastor there ended up being uh, good friends with my stepdad when my mom remarried, and mm-hmm. uh, and so he was kind of in our lives a little more than, oh, so many great stories, <laughs> shooting bottle rockets at his house at 2 a.m. Yeah. And, and coming out and chasing us. He was a good sport, though. Yeah. Um, but I was just passing him in the hall one day, uh, and I don't know, I was probably uh, late high school, maybe early college. And, you know, this church had been, uh, since the since the early 80s, had been very much built on small group 
concept, mm-hmm. which was pretty rare at that time. But um, they really, really um, uh, invested very highly in that in that uh, in that format, and so um, they called them fellowship groups. Mm. Uh, and we were passing in the hall and just tossing by comment, and he's like, he asked me, he's Tony, are you in a fellowship group? And I said, no, I'm not. And he said, well, you need to get in one. And that was it. That was the comment. Like, mm. literally, it took that long for us to have this conversation. Um, huh. And he was just kind of that kind of guy as well. Um, and so I said, well, okay, I, I guess I will. I was kind of a, a little bit of a loner. Yeah. Uh, like, my faith was very personal to me, but I was still uh, still a, kind of a private person. And mm-hmm. so the idea that a small group of people would be key to my growth and transformation as a Christ follower— Felt like weak sauce to me. Yeah, uh, you know, at the time, right. you know, it was like well, especially coming from the Catholic background. Yeah, right, yeah, exactly. Totally. It's like, totally. no, I, I've got this handled. Yeah. I, I don't really need community. Yeah, um, and anybody who does secretly, I thought, you know, well, I guess they, I guess they need help, you yeah. know. Yeah. Uh, and so, in my arrogance, that was kind of my like yeah. young, uh, my young sure. perspective. Uh, but you know, I had a great respect for him. Obviously, he had purchased a lot of credibility. Yeah, uh, in my life, this church had, and so you know, when he said that, I thought, okay, well, if that's what you say, I should do. I'll, that's what I'll do. Yeah. I was even back then; I was a very big believer in in submission to spiritual yeah. authority, you know. <laughs> sure. Um, and so, and so I did, and I joined this group with uh, Travis and Sandy Hudson. Mm. You know, and they were this young couple with had just had their first kid. Yeah. Um, you know, they were volunteers of the church. I, I think uh, Travis was a professional. Oh, he worked at Santee Cooper, which is an energy mm. company. He was a softball coach. Great couple. Um, and uh, got into that group, was in it for a while, and I was the youngest one there. And, uh, you know, so I just stayed quiet most of the time. And and uh, and then one time he's like, hey, Sandy and I are going to be out of town for a couple weeks. Will you lead the group? Yeah. And to me, that was like a big thing. I was like, uh, yeah, sure. I, I, I would love to. I, wow. And so I did, and it, and you know, it's like Joey's like one of those moments where you do something, and you're like, "Oh, this feels really good. Mm. I think I'm good at this. Mm. Like, there's something about this that is feeding me in a way that that I hadn't experienced before." Yeah. <clears throat> and so you know, a, a couple, and I, I didn't pursue it necessarily, but a couple more times, I, it must have gone well enough that when it, they were out of town again, he asked again, yeah. and then eventually he was like, "Hey, we think you should start your own group," mm, you know. Yeah. Uh, and to me, that was just like, uh, that was, a that was a pretty amazing. It was like, gosh, yeah. I don't feel like I'm qualified for this. I don't feel like I, you know, I don't feel like I have the right to lead anybody. Yeah. You know, I'm still just learning my own faith. I'm still learning all the time. And, mm. um, and, and it felt really good to have somebody say, Hey, you know, you've always been kind of in a, like a receiving right. posture in right. your life and your faith and you take it really seriously, but mm. You know, we think it might be time for you to start investing as well. Totally. You know, and and I'll never forget the way that he said it to me. He's like, "Hey, you know, the whole point of of parenthood, and he's learning about being a parent, you know, at the time, but he's talking about spiritually as well. He's like, the whole point of parenthood is that, you know, people feed you when you can't feed yourself. Mm. They prepare a meal for you because you're too young to do it yourself. You don't know what good nutrition looks like, and you're going to get hurt with the knife, and like, you know, don't turn on the gas stove and and like it's not appropriate. Right. People should be should be caring for you in this way. 
But the whole goal of that is teaching you how to prepare food for yourself. He says, and you've Mm -hmm. been in that state for a long time where you've taken your own spirituality, your own relationship with Jesus as your personal responsibility. You're responsible for your own growth and for what it means to be fed and nourished as a Christ follower. He says, but then there comes a time when you realize, hey, God hasn't been preparing you and maturing you and teaching you and providing for you just so you can keep getting it for yourself. Mm. Eventually, he wants you to grow up enough that you can start preparing food for others, Mm. right? And so he's like, I think you're at that time now where God is asking you to start feeding other people. Yeah. Uh, And so, you know, it was like, it was amazing. And so, you know, you look back at that and think, well, it all came from this weird rude comment passing me in the hall mm-hmm. from yeah. from this guy who I, yeah. I know cares about me, but he's leading yeah. a church, you know? Right. That's all the time he has for this conversation uh, <laughs> yeah. that kind of put me along this pathway into ministry that helped me discover what my gifts were, helped yeah. me discover what my passions were, um, and gave me the opportunity in a very responsible way mm-hmm. to kind of begin exploring leadership gifts. That's cool. This is a cool moment for me because you were actually the first person to... I think this is true. Give me the opportunity to lead a group of my peers. I had never done that mm. before. Um, I was in your life group. I think a year yeah, or two years maybe. Yeah. Um, and I had led a gr- I had led like a like a table of like fourth graders at that mm. point. I think in my life, I'm trying to remember you know where that falls you know in in my um, timeline. But uh, I think that was the first time I, I was in your life group. And you and Abby were away. I, I don't know what was going on, but you were out. Uh, and you said, "Hey, Joey, can you can you lead?" And that was my first time. And I I kind of uh, relate to that moment of like, oh, this is like satisfying in a way that I um, have never experienced before. This is filling me in a way that I had never wow things before. we so, learn about each other. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Awesome. So that's cool. Um, okay, so I I know one thing that you did for a really long time, just to kind of give listeners a sense of like the authority that you bring with you when you talk about the topics that we're going to jump into. Um, you consulted for churches for a long time. Is yeah, that right? Yeah, yeah, for sure. You know, I, I started out consulting for businesses while I was just volunteering mm. uh, at churches, and um, you know, I think there's there's a lot of. Uh, by the way, there's a great article by Tim Keller mm. called "Church Leadership and Size Dynamics," mm. uh, which was which was a little bit of an eye opener for me. Um, gosh, a decade or more ago, maybe um, uh, that really talks about the idea of uh, you know there's some really important factors when you're in a church that size makes a huge difference, both Mm. in terms of organizationally, how Mm -hmm. it's run, the principles that you have to utilize to make sure that it's it's functioning well. Um, And, and, you know, they're not things that we typically think of. Like you said earlier, it's not sexy or it it doesn't feel spiritual to sit and do Excel sheets, you know, (laughs) right? Or, or, Or to say, hey, you know, we can get better grounds maintenance at 10% less if we blank, you know? Uh, or, hey, I think we need to change the structure of this department so mm-hmm. that, you know, n- that doesn't feel very spiritual. And people don't typically think of those things as very pastoral, mm-hmm. you know. And, and so, you know, part of my journey was coming through more through the business world. Yeah. And I feel like learning a lot of principles there. But those were all principles that I, I feel like dovetailed and resonated really strongly with my church experience already. Mm. I feel like people who uh, spend a lot of time either volunteering or being a part of serving or leading in a church get like exposure to leadership principles Mm. that you don't get anywhere else. Hmm. Uh, But people in the business world absolutely seek them out. CEOs go and read leadership books all the time. Yeah. Because there's not just an inherent cultural or social understanding of what good leadership principles look like. Mm. 
Uh, and so it's kind of coming from the business world and feeling like, well, that's a very separate area mm-hmm. from the church world. Um, it was kind of a, it was kind of one of, another one of those moments where, where there's this a little bit of an epiphany and the whole world just shifted around me and clicked into focus. Yeah, you know, it's like when you're at the optometrist and they're doing the like the the lenses better or worse. Yeah, yeah, yeah. better or worse. You know, and each time it gets a little clearer. It's like yeah. somebody taking something that's been fuzzy my whole life. Yeah, and then they say they click the lens into place and it's like what? That's how clear it is? Yeah. Life? I never thought life could be this clear. You know, those are those moments where, you know, where as an executive pastor at a church that I was volunteering at, um, that that basically said, hey, you know, this is what I do, and this is my spiritual offering to the Lord. Mm. Like, these are how my practical gifts of finance, of HR, of organizational strategy, yeah. of yeah. good team dynamics, like, these are how these things impact the spiritual growth of mm-hmm. thousands of people. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's like, and you know, it's kind of like that revelation of, oh gosh, the areas that God has put me in in my career, mm-hmm. uh, which which were very uh, a little bit off the wall, yeah, um, and they didn't seem to make a lot of sense to me. But because I'm a learner, and I just want to be in rooms where people who are super smart and passionate about what they do, yeah. So I got to be in a lot of different places that are places I didn't earn the right to be there, or they weren't part of my education. Yeah, I, I feel like God just put me there. You know, yeah. um. And they were mostly business and organizational competency-related places, like mm-hmm. working for the Army, uh, working yeah. as the, the liaison to the, to the Pentagon. You know, I mean, wow. like yeah. cr- crazy stuff. Working for a software development company funded by GE Capital in Atlanta. You know, I had my own office with video games and a pool. I mean, like crazy stuff. God just yeah. put me in these places that yeah. were, um, that were, I would say, were above my pay grade. Mm. You know, I didn't get there because I was the smartest person in the room. Huh, yeah. Uh, and it, but it let me learn things and be exposed to things, which soup felt super random when I'm yeah. looking at them with foresight. It's like, why am I here? What am I learning? What <laughs> yeah. is the purpose of this? Yeah. And then in hindsight, I look back and say, oh, gosh, you wanted me to understand this because the church needs this too. You know what I mean? Yeah, totally, and so, yeah. And so it kind of yeah. went from that, like, well, I'm I'm working as a consultant for you know good team dynamics for corporate culture or uh, organizational strategy and how do we make the most of the resources we have with our business model in our market? Yeah. To like, okay, what does this mean to the church? Yeah. You know, the church is one of the only complex organizations in the world that is perfectly content to operate without a clear understanding of its mission, values, strategy, and metrics. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. And so like, to kind of come into that realization of understanding, oh gosh, how much more could the church thrive if it did have somebody who was helping think through these things? Yeah. Right? Is like, you know... and. How, and, and the challenge is, is, like, if you're a small church, it's like being in an emergency room. There's never a question of where your priority should be or what your next action is. There are people who are bleeding out on the floor. We know what we need to do. Right. Yes. It's very clear. Yes. You know, but the, the more, co- the larger a church grows, the more complex it gets. Yeah. You know, the more opportunities they are, there are, uh, the, the less focused it gets and the more mysterious your next step is. Yeah. Like, there's nothing pushing us into an emergency status here. So what should we? be doing where should our resources be focused how can we be sharpening up uh you yeah. know you know the, the old saying hey if you have two hours to cut down a tree spend an hour and a half sharpening your axe 
Mm. You know what I mean? It's like, yeah. and so when things get complex, when they're, when you get overwhelmed by opportunities, which right. is typical in a larger organization, like it's hard to sharpen your axe because you don't know where to focus. Totally. And so being able to leverage uh, that kind of leadership and organizational strategy mentality, like helping things become clearer for yeah. the sake of helping things become more effective. Uh, like it was like, oh gosh, like I am passionate about that because I'm passionate about the church. Yeah. Like, you know, God says, hey, I, you know, I want my bride to be spotless, without blemish, perfect in every way. Mm. And and I think of like what the what the modern large evangelical church is, and I think, oh man, there's a there's a lot of dysfunction here. Yeah. Like I, I want the bride to be spotless. I want I want the bride to be making the most of the resources that God is is you know what I mean? Yeah. Is bringing our way and 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 to be uh, effective in the best way possible. And so, you know, to be able to do that at the size that a church is, like you have to have somebody who who thinks those those unpastoral yeah. thoughts, you know, yeah. like how do we maximize yeah. the usage of our resources over time? How yeah. do we prepare for where our culture and our society is going? Yeah. Uh, what does it look like to interface well with um, with California, mm. with the city, totally. uh, you know, with COVID yeah. guidelines, with, yeah. you know, uh, with resources, with safety protocols, with yeah. human resources, with OSHA, like, yeah. you know, somebody has got to be thinking through those things so that, you know, things don't fall apart Yeah, or you don't just, you know, straggle along the best way you can. Yeah. Like that's the big, that's one of the biggest tragedies I think in the church mm. is that God allows them to grow to a certain point where they can have, uh, such a, such a tectonic impact on the culture around them. Yeah. But because they're just bumbling around and trying to make things work, it just gets yeah. diffused. Well, you used the word a, a minute ago that I want to circle back to, which is content. You said that most churches are content to mm -hmm. operate without a clear mission statement or strategy for how you're going to like execute on that mission statement. Right. Why, why do you think that is? Why, why is there a contentment there? Cause that doesn't make sense to me. Yeah. You know, I, I think a lot of times, uh, it's because, and I'm going to, I'll, uh, I'll send you a link or if you remind me to send you a link and maybe you can put a, a link to the, uh, Tim Keller article or, yeah, I'll put it or in the whatever in the, below. in yeah. the, yeah. Um, <clears throat> I think a lot of it is because, uh, one, because, uh, I think a lot of pastors come into leading larger churches mm -hmm. and they're visionaries, you know, uh, and, and there's yeah. a, another, so I'm sorry, this is going to be a big commercial for a, a lot of stuff that's been really helpful to me, but yeah. so there's this book called Rocket Fuel, No, this is great. Uh, yeah. which, yeah. which um, is, you know, there's a lot of books that do this, but this one is really great. It makes mm -hmm. it simple, easy to grasp, yeah. makes it really clear very early on how, how to frame these concepts, uh, you know, and it, and it talks about this dynamic of, uh, you know, how do you get rocket fuel, like something that has incredibly an incredible amount of energy stored in it that is ready to be unleashed yeah. to move something forward. Yeah. Uh, and it talks about this dynamic between visionaries and integrators. Right? right. So you have visionaries who are people who typically live in the future. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, they they typically go from thing to thing. They mm -hmm. love imagining uh, mm. what could happen and what should happen. You know, uh, they they are entrepreneurs. Mm -hmm. They think creatively. 
Uh, they, you know, some of the, so that's some of the positives of visionaries. You know, some of the challenges of visionaries is it's hard to keep them on the same topic for very long. <laughs> right. They get bored really quickly. Yeah. You know, they don't like to manage things over time. Yeah. Uh, you know, and where integrators are kind of the uh, the opposite side of that coin, mm-hmm. right? Nobody needs a coin that has the same both sides, yeah, right? Yeah. And the opposite side of that coin are integrators. They are people who love to think through the implications of your great idea, mm. the execution of your great idea. Yeah. Who's going to be impacted by this? What kind of resources and process do we need in place to make the most of it? Mm. How do we make it sustainable? Uh, you know, what is it going to look like for the people who are supporting it? You know, so so integrators want to capture that visionary impulse and idea mm-hmm. and figure out the best way to make it work for the longest period of time for the least amount of resources, yeah. you know? Uh, and so, you know, under, so one, understanding that, that concept I think is really important, mm-hmm. but two, understanding where you fit mm-hmm. in that concept as a leader is vitally important. So if you have a pastor who's a lead pastor of a church and lead pastors are often visionary people, Yeah, you know, God gives them the gift of seeing more and seeing before they see around Mm. the corner and Mm. they, God is talking to them about where the church should be going. And what does it mean where that the culture is headed this direction? And like, you know, what is this body of believers that is unique in its own right? Like what, what does God have for them in the next 18 months to five years, right? And so a lead pastor is focused on those kinds of things. Um, But uh, they need an integrator. So, you know, Mm -hmm. obviously we're talking about a church that's over a certain number and complexity level, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, In in smaller churches, lead pastors have to serve as both visionaries and integrators, you Mm -hmm. know? They have nine jobs and wear five hats, uh, you know? And they know what needs to happen next because the urgency of the, you know, the the triage. Yeah. and they can they can always involve other people and but when you get past a certain complexity level and that's why I said you know that's I think I clarified my comment like uh, it, you know only one one of the complex organizations right yeah uh, that's content to operate without all these things mm. is because they don't understand that there's there's such a need for the other side of that coin yeah. the spiritual what you call the sexy side of ministry yeah. like of sitting with people of helping their lives be transformed helping them hear the holy spirit helping yeah. them develop great uh, growth and rhythms and habits in their life uh, you know, sitting down with teenagers and talking through what they're wrestling through in their life and helping them find the truth. Like, that's the sexy side of ministry. That's yeah. the the pastoral, overtly spiritual side totally. of things. Um, but at a certain level, you also have to have somebody behind the scenes mm-hmm. thinking through, how do we make it sustainable to do this yeah. for 1,500 people? Yeah. Because you, as a pastor, can't do that, no. right? Yeah. It doesn't scale. Yeah. Uh, you know, how do we provide small groups that are going to make that happen? on a scalable way, as opposed to just hiring, you know, 40 more pastors to do that for individuals totally. on a one-on-one basis. You yeah. Know? It's, it's the Jethro, Moses and his father-in-law Jethro approach. Yeah, How right. How can we Absolutely. actually structure this to, to maximize uh, efficiency? For sure. Yeah. You know, and, and, and so what I would say is, is that um, most organizations, they, they have a hard time understanding the value and the importance of that unspiritual feeling side. Uh, and so they think they just need to be more passionate. 
<laughs> they think right. they just need to try harder. Hear God more. Or, yes. Yeah. He, yeah, yeah, yeah hear yeah, God yeah. more. Work harder. Yeah. Uh, you know, dedicate more time. And, you know, I think I call it the ministry treadmill, right? Mm. So they get on this ministry treadmill and they are running for their lives yeah. and they are sweating bullets and they're exhausted, but they're wondering why they're not getting farther. Totally. Um, and, you know, I th- what I would say is a lot of them are content because, um, because there's a resistance to organizational strategy, mm. good team dynamics, mm-hmm. and great resource management because it, it doesn't feel very spiritual. Yeah. And so it's hard to imagine investing your resources and your time into something that doesn't feel very spiritual. So like even so let, let's take our church as an example. Um, and like we're very blessed because our lead pastor has is has really strong integrator tendencies mm. and strong visionary tendencies. Mm. And so, I, you know, he has a great concept of the value of both sides of that. Mm-hmm. Um, but when you look at that, like the average, if the average attender of my, our church, so if you're listening and you're an average attender, yeah. if I'm speaking <laughs> for you, then, and you resonate great. If I'm not, then you're just, you're incredibly, you're, you're ahead of the ball. Yeah. Um, but most of them, when, when I would say, you know, when I meet them, even still some, I meet people who are like, Oh, hey, oh, you're one of the pastors at Rocky Peak. Oh, that's mm-hmm. great. What do you do? I'm an executive, I'm the executive pastor. Well, yeah. what does that mean? Yeah. What do you do? Yeah. Like, is that a full-time job? How do you <laughs> yeah. like does that require enough time that it's a it's really right. a role? Yeah. You know, and what I would say is like, you know, that's not a it's not a loaded question or a disrespectful question. Totally. It's like, yeah, I, it's hard for me to even imagine what happens behind the scenes of the visible side of ministry yeah. that would require so much time and effort. Yeah. Right. I mean, unless you've been a small business owner. Yeah. Right. Or you've yes. worked uh, at the at the executive level at yeah. a, in a complex organization, then you start to understand like the uh, how much time, energy, and resources those things actually need, and yeah. how difficult they are. Yeah. Uh, and I would say, you know, it's it's more difficult in the church world, even with a even with a team that really understands the value of that, mm-hmm. um, because. It's never going to be as simple as it is in the business world. In every business that understands, you know, what I call the five irreducible questions of leadership, like mm-hmm. number one, ultimately, what should we be doing? Now, what can we do? What must we do? Yeah. Right. What is our mission? Yeah. What's our guiding North Star, our, our compass, our north on the compass? Like, what should we be doing? Uh, you know, number two, like, how are, how are we going to do it? What's mm-hmm. our strategy? Like, how do we accomplish our mission? Number three, what are our values? What are the things we're not willing to give up in the effort of do of accomplishing this? Mm-hmm. Right? What are the what are the principles that are going to guide the way we do it? Mm. Um, and then number four, what are our metrics for success? How do we know when we're winning? Mm. And then number five, okay, now what does that mean we should be doing? Like, mm. you know, for us as a church, number the question number five is like, okay, given that we know what we're supposed to be doing, mm-hmm. we know how we're supposed to be doing it, we know why we're supposed to be doing it, and we know how to evaluate a win. What does that mean about where God is taking us in the in the next step of our future, mm. right? Um, and so, uh, so even when there are good leadership teams that understand and have answered those five questions, they've reached a point of clarity and mm-hmm. what our identity is and what our activity should be, uh, and then how do we measure that and succeed at it? Even then, still, it's not as simple as business. Because yeah. you're in business, and the bottom line is very clear. Yes. We want to accomplish X by X. Mm-hmm. You know whether that's uh, growth in our market, whether that's an income target, you know whether that is growth in our resources or our, our staffing or mm-hmm. adding a product or whatever it is. 
It's a clear metric to measure. It's easy to measure it. And when teams are not aligned to uh, accomplishing that, they just align them. They mm-hmm. either get rid of the team, close down that branch or that yeah. that side of things, or they find ways to help them contribute to it. Or, you know, if they say, hey, this no longer justifies this staff position, well, then we're going to lay that person off. Mm-hmm. Well, can you imagine if we took that kind of like yeah. a business like approach in the church? Like yeah. people's people would be hurt. Lives would be yeah. <laughs> like ruined. They'd be up in the air. It'd totally. feel very unpersonal, whereas ministry is incredibly personal, mm-hmm. right? It's not just your job, it's your calling. Mm. It's it's representative of, of your relationship with, with your God, right? And yeah. with the church, which is also your church, yeah. right? And yeah. so there's, there's never an objective relationship with uh, the church when you work there. Mm-hmm. It's still incredibly personal. Totally. Yeah. Um, you mentioned, I loved those five questions. That's awesome. I was even thinking about like, man, I can really apply those to my life as far mm-hmm. as like what I do am doing personally, just as an individual, um, or even in my marriage. Funny enough, know? the, the life group that we did immediately following the one that you were in, yeah. uh, was a life group designed for young parents that helped them answer those five questions for their oh, family wow. specifically. That's cool. Yeah. And so, you know, like having kids, uh, is incredibly, is incredibly demanding and rewarding, mm-hmm. uh, but if you haven't established those the, those questions in your life, being a parent takes over your life. Yeah, like absolutely. It, it becomes it, it becomes like like churches that are content mm-hmm. to live out their organizational life, never having a clear answer to those questions. Yeah, right. And so it's like, well, what are we doing? Well, we're doing the most generic thing that it means to be a church. We're glorifying love, love God, God, love God and, people. Yeah, yeah. We're, exactly. <laughs> we're making disciples and we're glorifying yeah. God. You know, it's like we're we're accomplishing the Great Commission, yeah. which is the most. I mean, that's like that's like saying my purpose as a human being. What it means to be human is to eat, breathe, and think. Mm, well, yeah. yeah, sure. Yeah. Um. There, you know, ninety eight percent of every person on the planet, and you've heard me say this, mm-hmm. shares the exact identical DNA. Yeah. More more than ninety eight percent exact identical DNA for every person on the planet. Yeah. And yet we don't have a problem understanding that every person is unique. Mm. And so that less than two percent difference in our DNA is powerful enough to make every individual unique. Yeah. But we don't think of churches that way. We think of churches in the most generic terms possible yeah. almost. Like they're they're carbon copied, like we're an evangelical church. So what's our goal? Well, our goal is to f- fulfill the Great Commission. We're going to make fully devoted followers of Jesus <laughs> yeah. of every person who walks in our doors, which, yeah. yes, absolutely. Yeah. That is the 98% <laughs> shared DNA of what it means to be a church. Yeah. But God calls every church to also have a unique you know, footprint, a unique yeah. calling and purpose. You shared with me recently, you were at a church, and this kind of blew my mind because it was so specific, but you, you shared that you were at a church that um, decided your kind of whole ministry and goal was going to be foster care and the foster system. Um, yeah. And that's like wildly specific, mm-hmm. like to have be part, like you shared whatever the mission statement was for that church. W- will you share it? Now? Yeah, Would sure. It- yeah. Th- they decided their, their mission as a church was to reform the adoption and foster care system in White County, Arkansas. That's beautiful. Crazy. That was for the next 18 months at least. Yeah. You know, so they said, hey, this is it for the next 18 months. We don't know if it'll go beyond that, uh, but we're going to give it at least that long. But we feel very strongly that as we've done kind of this search for clarity about our identity as a church and what that means about what we should be doing, like our emergency room concept, right? Right. Uh, Like what must we do? This is it Mm -hmm. for at least the next 18 months. Yeah. 
uh, and it was really it was really both powerful and it was incredibly mind blowing. Mm-hmm. Like that was not something that was on the radar when we started that process of thinking through. Yeah. What is the next two? What are the next two years for us look like as a church? Yeah. Um, but through this, but through this process, and you know, I, I think that they were really wise in terms of their leadership approach. Uh, and you know, you've heard our 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 leader Michael say the same, right? Yeah. Like they understood really clearly, our job is not to create vision for the church. Mm-hmm. Like our job is to discover what God's vision for us as a mm-hmm. church is, to let it rise to the surface, mm. to to grab onto it and to ruthlessly pursue it. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's kind of like when we answer those five, you know, before any person as an individual or a family or an organization answers those five questions mm-hmm. and can articulate them clearly, um, it's kind of like going bowling with bumpers on. Mm. You know what I mean? Like yeah. you throw the ball down the lane <laughs> and you know that the pins are at the end of yeah. it, but the ball just kind of bounces off the bumpers. And I mean, you know, it's going to get to the end and it's yeah. going to knock some pins over, yeah, you know? Yeah, yeah. And that's how we think of success, yeah. right? Is like my life is, it's just going to kind of bu- go, it's just going to go off the bumpers of the lane until it gets to the end. Yeah. Well, I know I'm supposed to get an education. Well, there's a bumper. Yeah, right. I I know I should probably have good relationships. Well, there's a bumper. Mm-hmm. Well, I think I kind of want to get married and have kids. Well, there's a bumper. Yeah. Well, I know I should have a career. Yeah. You know, there's a bumper. Totally. But it's really a life that lacks clarity in the direction. Mm. It's like it's not like it's not starting out here and holding the ball up in front of you and knowing, okay, when I get to the third step, I'm going to be the ball's going to be <laughs> on the backswing and when I get to I'm going to be aiming at that little arrow on the lane, yeah. and I'm going to be putting all my strength in, in getting it to this specific point at the pins, mm-hmm. and it's going to knock down as many pins as possible. Yeah. You know, it's like that's a life having answered those five questions, totally. as opposed to just making it down the lane and bouncing off the bumpers. Yeah. You know, and so I, I think this church had they had answered those five questions yeah. and said with absolute clarity, "This is where we're supposed. This is our lane." Yeah. These are the pins that we have to knock down, you know? And so, uh, and like, I just love that. And, you know, it's not a forever thing. It's like at this time in this place right. with the people that God has brought here right now, mm-hmm. this is our mission. Yeah. And it is going to be locally specific, but cosmically significant. Mm. I love that. That's awesome. That's really cool. Uh, one thing I was going to ask is what other metrics, we just talked about one, mm-hmm. um, but other metrics metrics of success that churches have, u- you've seen churches mm-hmm. use either that you've been at or that you've consulted with um, for what success looks like. Because you have to measure it somehow. Yeah. And it's easy to kind of, uh, you know, I, I think like attendance is almost like a bad word at church. It's like, well, we shouldn't, it doesn't matter yeah, how people sure. God's bringing, you know, whatever. Um, but so what, what are some of those different like ways of, of considering that? And yeah, like for that? sure. I mean, we like to look down our nose like, oh, attendance and giving. Yeah. Well, those, those two, gosh, <laughs> yeah. um, how unspiritual. Yes. Those yes. numbers. Yes. Like we, we, I think we have this, I think we have this secret suspecting concept in our hearts, deep in our hearts that, that God doesn't really like numbers. That they're mm. that they're somehow unspiritual, but wow, that's that's really interesting because there's so many like num. When I think of the Bible, I think especially the Old Testament, I think of a lot of numbers. You know yeah, I mean? sure. I mean, there's uh, yeah. even a book. There's, well, yes, <laughs> there's a book. Yeah. yeah, but anyway, no. So you, that's not the so the yeah. question you asked is like yeah. about metrics, you know. And I, um, I, I again, being a, a little bit of a nerd, like I like yeah. to talk about metrics, and so I'm gonna, <laughs> I'll set a little bit of a framework, and you yeah. can, you know, you can say, hey, well, you know, we don't need to go that. That's a little too nerdy. <laughs> Uh, bring it back to the, but 
you know, I I think that there are a lot of different ways. And churches, you're right, it's especially hard to establish concrete metrics. Like, Mm. I'll I'll give you an example. So, you know, as we're going through this clarity process with this church that I was talking about in Arkansas, like, they discovered really quickly that church language can get muddy compared to, Mm -hmm. to organizational language or business language, right? So when you say, okay, well, worship... Mm-hmm. Well, is worship part of our strategy? Like, okay, worship is how we mm. create transformation in people's lives, or is it one of our values, mm-hmm. right? So, hey, we have a strong value of worship. We think everything we do should both be respective and worshipful of God. We think that, you know, having a musical component where we all praise God together and, and together in a, in a service is worship, and that's one of our values, or is it a success is it one of our metrics? Mm-hmm. Hey, the the amount of freedom and uh, that has has come in our worship. Like we used to be very much like people kept their hands to their sides. Like people are moving a little bit. Yeah. They're raising their hands. Like they're a little more expressive. Is, yeah. so is that, or is that a metric of success? Like mm. the the language gets cloudy really quickly, uh, right? Yeah. Uh, whereas in a business world, it, it it doesn't get cloudy. It stays mm-hmm. pretty. It stays pretty concrete. Mm-hmm. You know. And so I, I like to, in some ways, apply some business principles to um, how we approach metrics from a church standpoint, mm-hmm. right? And so I think there are three really important types of metrics uh, for churches, and that's input metrics, mm-hmm. output metrics, and impact metrics. Mm-hmm. And I'll, I will kind of use a business as a kind of an example to illustrate the, how these work in churches, right? Mm-hmm. So so let's go super generic so that can, we can apply it to whoever's listening. If, they're, if yeah. they go to a church or if they're in a church leadership position, yeah. you can think, oh, that's not hard to apply that where I'm at. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, so, so input metrics, right? So yeah. uh, if you're Nike, mm-hmm. you know, some of your input metrics are going to be how much shoe leather and shoelaces are coming into our factories on a, on a weekly basis. Mm-hmm. You know, so those are some of our input, input metrics. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we need to know what's coming in mm-hmm. uh, to be able to measure uh, both our, our productive facilities, mm-hmm. uh, how much we're going to be able to put out. Like, do we need to order more? Do we need less? Like, we don't want to have warehouses full of stuff that we can't utilize with our production methods. Mm-hmm. You know, input, input metrics are really important. And so in a church, input metrics will be, well, how many people are coming? Mm-hmm. How many people are going to your life groups? Right. How much money is is coming in in contributions and donations? Right. Like, those are input metrics. And those are really important. Those are a good indicator uh, of, uh, of your potential as an organization. Yeah. Right? And so I think it's taboo in a lot of churches to mm-hmm. try to to make a to make a big deal out of input metrics yeah. because they feel unspiritual. But on the other side of that, yeah. there are actually a lot of churches that mistake input metrics for output metrics. And I was just doing it kind of I was just doing it kind of in my head right now. I was like those kind of sound like output metrics to me, but I mm-hmm. go ahead and keep going and I'll, yeah. yeah. And so, you know, so if you, if you look at a church's mission, so Nike's mission is not to bring the most shoe leather, shoelaces and fabric right. into their, into their factories. Right. Um, you know, let's say, let's say this year, one of Nike's, uh, mission statements is to, uh, to produce more health conscious, uh, sports, uh, you know, resources yeah. uh, and to sell them, you know? So to see a growth in sales of, of, of shoes, of health, uh, health um, 
conscious thing. So whether, mm-hmm. you know, they do a, they do a, a, a deal, a collaboration with Fitbit or mm-hmm. with Apple or whatever yeah. and say, Hey, we're going to put a, we're going to put a Bluetooth receiver in our tennis shoes that allow you to oh, yeah. utilize them with your Apple device. And it will, you know, measure, you know, your, your number of steps and mm-hmm. estimate a heart rate based mm-hmm. on your, you know, the, the IR sensor on your Fitbit. And mm-hmm. so now we can help you be healthier in your life. Yeah. But our goal ultimately is to sell more things that help your life be healthier. We want growth. Yeah. So that's their mission statement for that year. So for a church that might be like, hey, we want to put out more disciples this year of this quality or better. Right. Mm. So so that's that's like an output metric. Or, you know, yeah. we want to have more uh life groups engage in serving opportunities around you know within a 10 mile radius of where they live yeah uh or you know we want to have more people engage in this class right which can be an intri- yeah. impact input metric but we believe that the people who come out of this class have tools that are going to allow them to be better disciples i'm right? having an epiphany right now it, it it's shifting the mentality from the staff and the pastor are providing like a product to the people that are there to really the people that are attending the members of your church becoming like part are the of workforce the of the product. yeah absolutely wow yeah absolutely because here's the thing oh my gosh if you think of the professionals as the ones who are solely responsible for that yeah then we'll call it horsepower I know that doesn't sound like a super yeah. spiritual word but yeah. the horsepower of your church will always be limited to your paid staff to right. your leadership, right? Right. And so if the mission of your church is only accomplishable by the professionals, mm-hmm. then it will only be as successful as those professionals can be. Right. Your Im- your your impact, so we'll get to impact metrics in a minute. Yeah, yeah. Your impact is going to be uh is going to be constrained to the horsepower of your leadership team. Yeah. Right? Whereas if it is if it is the job of the professionals to prepare your your congregation, your mm-hmm. workforce, mm-hmm. to do a great job in exercising the mission of the church, then you have an exponential increase in the ability to impact the world and the community. Yeah. And so, and so you're so you have output metrics, right? Which is how many disciples are we making on a yearly basis? Yeah. Well, if that's your mission, right? You know, right. you gotta you gotta align it to your mission. Yeah. Like Nike, how many? How many uh, you know health impacting products are we selling yeah. in this year? Because that's our output metric. You know that's how we're measuring success is yeah. by this output metric. Yeah. And then impact metrics are the hardest ones to measure mm-hmm. reliably, but they can be the most powerful as well, right? Mm. So, so for Nike, they could say, hey, in this year that you know our, our mission is to sell more of these health enhancing products, whether they're shoes, whether they're sweat <laughs> gear, whether they're branded Nike products, whether they're collaborations with Fitbit or Apple or whatever Mm -hmm. it is, right? So they could say, hey, our our impact metrics are, you know, there's 15% less cases of of, uh, heart disease Mm -hmm. in areas where our products have the highest sales, Mm -hmm. right? Or, hey, there are more people engaging in healthy rhythms and insurance premiums are going down because there are less cases of of uh, you know health impact by it because of obesity or because of sedentary lifestyle or mm-hmm. people are buying into our brand which is an activity brand. There's more right. hiking going. You know what I mean? Right. So impact metrics for them would be people are healthier, 
Um, there are more people who are buying into our health conscious brand. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so our, our society and our culture is experiencing an, an impact because of this. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's not hard to imagine how, what that would be for a church, right? Yeah. Is, you know, hey, there are, you know, and we'll, so we'll, we'll talk about this, this church in Arkansas, mm-hmm. right? So gosh, there are less, fa- there are less kids that are engaged in the foster care system waiting for a family than there mm. were last year. Mm. Hey, there are more children who found their forever families through adoption mm. uh, than there were before. Hey, there are more advocates that can help make foster care sustainable in a healthy mm. way because these people are certified to take these kids for a weekend, which allows these foster families to get a break, you know? Yeah. Uh, or, hey, there are less teen pregnancies mm-hmm. in our area because children are being more well taken care of. Mm. Or, you know, there's, you know, we, y- you can imagine there's yeah. no end to the amount of yeah. impact metrics that you can choose to measure because of the disciples and the quality of disciples that you're putting mm-hmm. out yeah. uh, that should be having a really significant impact on the community around them. Yeah. Right? So, and here's the thing like, how do you, which is a very, very different concept than how do you measure impact if your mission is really accomplishable only by your staff, right? Right. So if our staff are the number one contributor to accomplishing the mission of our church, how do you measure impact metrics? Hmm. Like it's, it's 100% anecdotal. Dang, that's, that's fascinating. That's, that's really getting me think about a lot of stuff. The, the other thing that I wanted to ask you about was like, Basically, and I think this ties in well to kind of what you just shared, is almost a brutally simple question, which is like, why do people come to church? Why, why do people mm. specifically? Why do people come to a church? What brings them there, and what what makes the difference between someone who's just an attender and someone who has buy-in to kind of that almost like, you know, for lack of a better term, metric that that mm-hmm. whatever whatever it is that that church has decided to aim at. Yeah. Um, what and and the softball I'm kind of throwing you is you shared with me a couple of years ago the four P's. That's ex- yeah. My Great. gosh. Well, yeah, you yeah, did yeah. a good job then because that's exactly where I was going. <laughs> that's with awesome. That. I love yeah. that. <laughs> you know, and I I think uh, so. One, I want to I want to take a moment to caveat all of this and mm-hmm. say uh, this is not like uh, Tony Bowick, the genius, who's coming up with all this stuff, right? <laughs> yeah. So I'm just a curator. I love that. Uh, uh, I'm just a curator of being in the of being the dumbest person in the room, right? Yeah. Of being in rooms with other people around the country, both as a consultant and getting to work with leadership teams that are nationally recognized churches. Yeah. That are like, oh my gosh, this is way above my pay grade. Why am I sitting in this room with this leadership staff? Yeah. With you know Max Lakito's team or or North Point or. Uh, you know, uh, or, uh, um, oh my gosh, uh, Mariners or yeah. whatever, whoever is like, right. I'm trying to help this pastor and these leadership teams figure out how to address their challenges. Yeah. Like, oh my gosh, like, how do I, how did I get here? It's not mm-hmm. because I'm the smartest person in the room. And the first prayer we say before we dive into this is Lord, please protect us from our own ingenuity. Mm-hmm. Because you have an answer that you want us to get to. We yeah. don't have to create the answer or come up with the answer, right? Yeah. Um, and so the caveat is that this is like being around people who are much smarter than I am. Mm-hmm. Being around people who have much more ministry experience and uh, have operated in a ministry, a broader range of ministry dynamics and governances, church governances for years. And so I get to absorb this stuff, and yes. now I get to curate That's it and cool. share it, right? That's cool. So. 
so that's the caveat. Is, I like that frame. Yeah. Yeah. And so, uh, so people who are listening and think, Hey, this stuff is out there. Uh, yeah. Hopefully I can just serve as a curator to bring it to you when you need it in the, in the format that is most helpful. <laughs> yes. Um, awesome. so, you know, so you, you mentioned this idea of the four P's and so, you know, why do people come to a church? Why do people stay there and how do you help them transition from being, uh, a consumer of your product mm-hmm. to somebody who is directly responsible uh, for for manufacturing and distributing your product, if we can call it that. Yeah. I know those so, sounds so unspiritual, but yeah. people, not just people who are becoming disciples, but people who are making disciples yes. and helping spread spread uh, the gospel mm-hmm. wherever they are. Right. So when you know when they wake up in the morning, they put on our church's Rocky Peak. So you know when they wake up in the morning, they roll out of bed and they put on Rocky Peak team colors and think, mm-hmm. "I have a mission in my life today, mm-hmm. and it's the mission of my church." Mm-hmm. And I share this mission with all the other people who are a part of my church. Yeah. I am essential to accomplishing my church's mission. Mm-hmm. The, some and you know not like yeah my pastor's mission. The mission the Lord has given us yeah. as an organization, as His bride as his church to you know to to accomplish this mission that is both locally specific to where we are in this time in this place but cosmically significant it has an eternal impact yeah you know it changes the world it changes people's lives and so uh, when we want them we want them to roll out of bed every morning and put on rocky peak team colors and say my church uh, has a mission and I am essential to that mission mm-hmm. and I know what I need to do in my day to day to move that mission down the field yeah. right because people don't start there. Yeah. <laughs> right? We can yeah. all acknowledge people no, people yeah, don't yeah, start yeah. there. And it's really hard to get them there. Well, it made me happy picturing that person who's got their Rocky Peak water bottle. Yes, it's sticking right? like this is what I'm doing. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. It's like no one no one's thinking that way, at least not at the forefront of their mind. Right. No, absolutely. Uh, hopefully there are those who in some subconscious way, they are thinking that way as they go about their day. Yeah, well, I yeah. mean, ultimately, it's our job to to get them there. Yeah, as as people who I say our job, meaning like as people who are on staff at a church. Yeah, people who are responsible for equipping them and enculturating them in the vision into the vision and mission mm-hmm. of our church. Yeah, and so. Uh, so, you know, there are really four main reasons that people come to a church and stay at a church. And so uh, if you put it like this, if, if we could put like a magical soul x-ray mm-hmm. at the entrance to our church, right? Mm-hmm. And so every person who comes and, you know, parks and, you know, makes it to the patio and then walks in the front doors of our church, like they pass through this magical soul x-ray machine. Yeah. And, you know, it, it tells us, hey, what is your identity connected to? Like yeah. when you say Rocky Peak is my church mm. or yeah, ju- I just feel like this is the church I'm supposed to be at. Yeah. Like what is that umbilical cord of identity connected to? Mm. Um, and there are really four main categories and it, I, you know, they're called the four P's because they all start with P yes. because that makes it super easy to yeah. remember, you know? <laughs> uh, and you know, the, and the first one, you know, the first one is, is going to be place. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, it is the physical place where you meet, you worship, you learn together, uh, you experience community. Mm-hmm. It's just the place. It's, Aesthetic, it's, look it, and yeah, feel, maybe. absolutely, yeah. right? And so it's very specific for us, um, and it feels like home. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's why when churches uh, they build a new campus, mm-hmm. or they build a new venue, or they change locations. Uh, yeah. There's there's always a huge amount of churn in that mm. because people get attached to the place. I'll, I'll give an example of this church that we consulted with, and uh, they had a 
kind of the equivalent of a, a, a CR, a Celebrate Recovery Program. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and, uh, you know, it had been, and this church was had a super small campus. Uh, they were like an old traditional church that had kind of uh, gone through the worship wars and mm-hmm. had experienced a lot of recent growth and... Mm-hmm. Um, had kind of they were like a closet uh, Baptist mm-hmm. church now. Yeah. Like before they were like overtly Southern Baptist, and, and now they were kind of closet Baptist, non-denominational yeah. feel. Okay, uh, you know, very welcoming. You yeah. know, um, and uh, you know, it it wasn't just a place to go if you're already a Baptist anymore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, um, and and so their their identity was creating their change in identity was creating a, a ton of, of growth. Mm. And so they had gone to a place where they had really outgrown their campus. Mm-hmm. And so they did a, a, you know, a capital campaign and they had, and they had bought some land and they were doing a building yeah. uh, project where they were, they were building a campus that was specifically designed for their mission as a church, mm-hmm. as opposed to this old kind of traditional campus right. that, you know, and so anyway, all that to say that this CR program had been meeting literally in the church basement. Um, like cinder block, gray cinder block walls, concrete floor, metal folding chairs, like all of the worst environmental things you remember with small traditional churches, you know, uh, every time you would move a chair, I I visited them, right? So every time you'd move a chair across the floor, it made that metal chair scooching sound. Yeah. It's It's there. We can all hear it, (laughs) you know? Uh, and so this, this, CR analog, this I'll just call it CR. Yeah. This program had been meeting in the church basement for like 10 years. Yeah. But here's the thing. It had been incredibly successful. The lead pastor had been the one who was the primary leader for this program. Mm. Um, so much of their current leadership that had helped them uncover like this reform, this reformation in their their kind of their identity and their culture had been come through this CR program. Mm-hmm. Like they had experienced tremendous freedom from addiction, spiritual growth, intentional discipleship. It was a very successful program. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, so when this, when this pastor came back and was telling them about the new campus, mm-hmm. this building project that was probably 70, 80% done. Yeah. And so he's telling the CR program and, and he had invited all the past leaders that were now currently mm-hmm. on church staff. And, yeah. and so he's sharing this vision with them and he's, he's anticipating these guys are going to be super excited about yeah, this yeah. is really going to honor them. Like, gosh, guys, we have created a space that is designed just for you mm-hmm. on this new campus. It's upstairs. It's literally corner windows looking across oh, wow. this beautiful campus. And he's he's like, okay, I'm ready for the cheers. Yeah, yeah. And these guys got like, oh, gosh, please don't make us do that. Yeah. You know what I mean? We're not ready to move there yet. I mean, he was pitching like, hey, before the rest of the campus is even done, we want right. to get you in. You know what I mean? It's like right. this is going to be honoring to all of the the great things that have come out of this program. Yeah. We prepared a special place just for you. Mm-hmm. And these guys were miserable about it. Mm. You know what I mean? Yeah. And what I, the things that the kind of thing and he's like baffled by it. But the kind of things he's hearing are like you can't these concrete center block walls have echoed mm. with God's the work of God and the stories of God changing lives. Mm. We have met the Lord here in this simple, unattractive place yeah. and experienced amazing amount of life transformation that you just can't even imagine. Yeah. And thinking of going to a place like that, it doesn't feel the same. Mm-hmm. They, their identity was tied to the place. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? It's, it's kind of silly to think that something so mundane could have such a spiritual impact on people. But yeah. it, but it, it totally. really did totally, and so their their identity was really tied to that place. Yeah. And so it was hard for them to imagine how much more 
incredible it could be in the future yeah. because that's where their that's where their sense of belonging was tied. Yeah. I'm thinking back just to our conversation earlier about kind of the sacred and the majestic and, mm-hmm. and uh, you know in a lot of those cathedrals they've been there for a very yeah, long time absolutely. and there, there's a history and there's a um a legacy that exists in those walls. That's kind of part of the point. Yeah, of it. absolutely. There's yeah. an honoring of what God has done yeah. in creating a great space for him to fill. And kind of yeah. almost in the opposite direction from that, you know, this yeah. great cathedral yeah, yeah. versus this concrete basement. But, yeah. but still this attraction to place and saying, mm-hmm. Hey, in some way that I don't understand my identity is tied into place. Yeah. So that's the first P, yeah, you know, uh, you know, the second one is programs. And again, mm-hmm. this is not a hard one for people. People get this one pretty intuitively. Yeah. It's easy to remember. Uh, you know, it's like Aunt Susie's life group with yeah. the same, the same 20 women that have been doing it for the last 20 years. Yeah. Uh, and you know, that is their small group and they have experienced God and it's kind of like the us for and no, and no more, yeah. you know, yeah. and like, please don't ask us to stop doing this, even though it feels totally out of sync with what's going on with the rest of the church, yeah. even though it feels like, like, does anybody know what's going on over here? In this, yeah, yeah. Like, you know, or, you know, it, on the other side, it could be this really phenomenal kids program. So, mm-hmm. you know, we have a next step dessert and you ask people, Hey, like, what was it that brought you to rock? Oh, my kids love it. Mm-hmm. Like the kids program is amazing. Mm-hmm. They love coming back. I feel like it's a place where I can put my kids. I feel safe. It feels fun. They want to be there. I, I I have confidence that they're getting a great representation of the mm-hmm. gospel uh, and the principles of God in mm-hmm. ways that are appropriate to their age, yeah. you know, or, you know, uh, hey, life groups I, like, gosh, this is a huge church. And, you know, Life groups is a really a way that I can find my community. Mm-hmm. I can begin to experience accountability and ch- the challenge of people around me in a realer way. Well, that's, I mean, those are all programs, mm-hmm. right? And so the idea that if, if one of those, like if tomorrow we said, hey, we're going to, we really don't feel life groups is where God is calling us in the next season of our church. Mm-hmm. You know, we're just going to transition away from that. How yeah. many people would feel like this isn't my church anymore? Oh, totally. Or yeah. if, you know, if we said, hey, you know, we feel like we want children to cu- start coming to the service yeah. with the parents. We feel like we're going to change our messages to be more appropriate to that age group. Yeah. And so there's no longer, you know, or, you know, hey, Aunt Susie, you and your ladies, you know, have to stop meeting in this way. We want you mm-hmm. to be a part of this. Mm-hmm. It's like, how many of them, how many would the roots of their identity yeah. feeling like this is my church yeah. would suddenly feel really loosened? Yeah. Like, yeah, this is, I don't know. I don't know if, if, if this is my church anymore. Well, and for context, we have 80% of our membership in, in our in, life, in group. life group. Yeah, so, right. he, he, Very core. Yes. So that really is a good example. Absolutely. Of, yeah. And I and I think, uh, you know, our, our leader, Michael, talks about it in this form, and I love this, but, you know, hey, our, our priority is always function over form. Yeah. Right? We're not going to let the form determine what we should do. It's going right. to be the function. Right. And we always want the format of what that looks like to be, you know, subservient to the function, what we're trying to accomplish. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, but for but for many people... The form is sacred. Mm-hmm. Uh, or even if they realize the form is not sacred, mm-hmm. their identity is still tied into it in a really powerful way. Yes. You know, yeah. they come because of this program yeah. and they stay because of this program. And this program yeah. went away, <clears throat> then it wouldn't feel like their church anymore. Yeah. Right. Uh, you know, so the, the, the third, sorry, I, I'm going to give you space. You look like you want to say something. <laughs> there. No, yeah. I don't know if I actually want to say this. I can cut it if I want to. I'm doing the math I, I, on the, I keep going back to Catholicism <laughs> and I'm doing the math and I'm like, please program, 
person, you know, mm-hmm. the papacy. I'm like, it's very, it's leaning into all of these, all of these things a lot. So, but, yeah. I mean, all churches are. All For churches sure. Are. Like, yeah, absolutely. That's just the one on my mind right yes. now, I guess. Well, you know, when I think it's, I think it's about creating a sense of belonging or identity. Yes. Um, in any complex organization that has these elements. Yeah. Right. And the, the trick is you don't want to stop people from attaching their identity to these things. And we'll talk out yeah. after okay. I get all through okay. four, all through four, four P's. We'll talk about that. Like these yeah. are good things. Yeah. You know, totally. um, like we don't we don't want to try to keep people from experiencing yeah. great programs yeah. or a, a beautiful place to worship, yeah. you know, um, you know, so the third one, though, is is personality. Right. Uh, and, and this one is a really tough one. Um, because the stronger and more dynamic leader you have, mm. the more you have to fight against this. Um, but, you yeah. know, this is just the, the, the fact that most people, because they come to a church, and, you know, whether it's Barna Research, mm-hmm. whether it's uh, Pew Re- whatever it is, yeah. what, it's uh, research shows that attendance rises and falls more often on, than any other factor on who's in the pulpit, right? Uh, and so this personality P is a is an incredible way that people attach their identity. If there's a leader that is really dynamic, it's mm-hmm. kind of their favorite leader. Yeah. It, you know, it could be somebody who's not even a stage presence, right? Totally. It's just somebody who did marriage counseling for us. Yeah. And this person really God spoke through them. Yeah. And used them to create life transformation for us in a way that uh, is foundational to our our spiritual path, mm-hmm. right? Uh, but most often it is. It's a stage presence. It's your favorite worship leader. Mm-hmm. It's your favorite yeah. teaching pastor. You know, it's your favorite youth minister, whoever it is, yeah. you know? It's like if that person went away, like, uh, would that loosen the roots of my identity at this church, right? Yeah. You know, if if... If you're if one of the primary teachers retired tomorrow, yeah, like would it still feel like people were just as committed to this church as they were when he was here? Yeah, you know, is yeah. that umbilical cord still attached just as strongly, or yeah. or is it not? Right. I, th- I think about I think about Stephen Furtick a lot in mm-hmm. Elevation and just yeah. being like, I wonder, like he's probably going to be there for a really long time. I would imagine. I I just wonder like. That'll be interesting to follow. I mean, any church, Andy Stanley, you know, any, any, Craig Rochelle, any, any famous pastor, Mm -hmm. what happens when a pastor like that steps, steps down, is done, retires, you know, Yeah. what happens, you know, to the church after that? Do we have any examples of that as far as like maybe a pastor who was big in the eighties or nineties or, you know, 2000? (laughs) Gosh, well, I say unfortunately, but um, yeah, for sure. You know, I think churches that... (sighs) I I can't think of an example from that time period um, other than personal examples of okay. churches that I yeah. know that were really big mm. uh, that have really just like, it's kind of like a, where are they now? Yeah. Church, yeah, you know? Yeah. Um, and they're all personal examples. And so totally. I don't think they would be yeah, relevant yeah, to most okay. of the people listening. But, but even if you look at that, like for sure, like look at what happened with... Um, you know, there are a couple of big churches that have had some significant uh, pastoral transitions just in even the past few, past few years, right? Some Mariners. Sure. You know, you have uh, um, Kenton, who, you know, turned it over to, to Eric Geiger. Okay, uh, yeah. You know, and, and it'd be really interesting to see what, you know, like how that impacted yeah. uh, their weekly attendance. But it's hard to yeah. tell because it was also happening kind of in a COVID time mm-hmm. frame. Yeah. So there's a lot of other yeah. 
there's a lot of there, there. So it's hard to measure it recently because there are a lot of other mitigating factors that sure. it's hard to untangle. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, or when you have a pastor. So <laughs> yeah. here's the thing. So when a pastor has a moral failure or yes. they get relieved of their of their position um, because not because of a moral failure necessarily, but because um, like, you know, there's a very popular podcast that's come yes. up recently about a pastor yes. who was just, you know, very uh, acerbic and very headstrong and, yeah. you know, a little rude and, yeah. you know, and so... You know, but you watch what happens when you have those pastors who are kind of larger than life personalities. You know, they write books, right. uh, you know, they have video series that other right. churches utilize. And what happens when they leave that position? Yeah. Uh, when they leave because of a moral failure, obviously there's this huge loss of trust mm-hmm. that's like, oh gosh, well, can I consider them still a source of truth? Yeah. Uh, you know, like, gosh, I resonated really strong with their book on spiritual development, but. Is it safe now to recommend that book to other people? Well, there's a couple you know, of or, names that I know our, our leader struggles with. Is like yeah. as far as like this is still good, good content, but I don't feel like we can use this person because it's a distraction. Yes, now. right. You yeah. know, and I think it's hard to untangle. So when a pastor, I think pastors like that, unfortunately, more often leave their role mm-hmm. because of moral failure or because they just kind of outstay their welcome in terms yeah. of how the church is changing. Yeah, then. Then they do like, hey, I made it through. I'm a larger than life church personality. I made it through 40 years of successful ministry. And now I'm choosing to step aside at the right time and bring on another dynamic, you know, successor. Right. Like it's, it's honestly, unfortunately, I think it's hard to find churches where that is the main dynamic. Totally. You know, as opposed to churches where pastors had to be asked to leave or removed. Uh, yeah. that are those larger than life, you know? And yeah. so on the one side, like those pastors just have a huge target on their back. You know, on the other side, yeah. the stresses of ministry for pastors that don't have the right support structure mm-hmm. and accountability, you know, anyway, yeah. we're getting a little off topic. Yeah, sorry. But yeah, yeah. yeah. So fourth P. Yes, yeah, sorry. Gosh, well, we were on the P's. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so personality. So you know that when that personality is no longer there as yes. the attractive factor to establish your identity, yeah. then you're going to have fall off. Totally. You're going to have people yeah. that either survive and and find something else to attach their identity to, or yeah. they're going to feel like they're a little lost. And maybe yeah. I should go find another church or, you know, there's a lots of different ways to interpret that. But the fourth yeah. P is people. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this is a, one of the harder ones uh, because uh, it, it's honestly, it's talking just about the sociological phenomenon that you get faster at most bars than you can mm. at a church, right? Yeah. It's like sometimes you want to go where <laughs> yes. everybody knows your name. Yes, yeah, exactly, yeah, yeah. right? Like, uh, you know, that's the that's the fact that I'm talking about, right? Yes. Is like when you come to a church, you have this group of people who know your name. They miss you when you're not there, right? Yeah. They talk to you and they approach you when you're there. They're your people. Yeah, you know, they're your uh, your crowd of uh, this feels like home to me because these people yeah. are here. Yeah. And if suddenly they all left and went to a different church, would it still feel like this was home? You know, yeah. would it still feel like, oh yeah, I am known at this church. No, I am understood word, at this yeah. church. Um, like this church fills the need that I have to communicate and to connect with people authentically and mm-hmm. relationally. Yeah. You know, or are you going to say? Yeah, those people left, but I'm still attached to this church. I need to find, you know, I need to to grow my circle of 
of deep personal relationship. Most of the time, people instead start feeling like, well, this isn't really my church anymore. It's not the mm-hmm. same church. Yeah. And a lot of times there are reasons why those people left. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so it's it's a lot easier to to attach yourself to uh, their reason for leaving, whether there's a change in culture or a change in mission yeah. or uh, a change in location or one of the other four P's. The the challenge here is is that those the four P's are all good things. Mm-hmm. We want people to have we want to have a great place to worship, places that remove distractions and feel like. Uh, man, this creates an environment where I can encounter God easily. Yeah, you know, we want to have phenomenal programs where you know you can bring your kids and they're going to be safe and they're going to have a great time and they're yeah. going to begin to understand biblical principles and the gospel. And we're going to have a life group where you can connect with people, uh, you know, the, in a real and authentic way, and mm-hmm. not just be a nameless person at a huge church. Yeah, you know, we want people to uh, to be able to connect with relevant programs that are meeting the needs that are real felt needs in their life right now. We want to have dynamic pastors who are great yeah. communicators yeah. who are, who are uh, very skilled at, at helping people hear God's voice in their life. Yeah. You know, we, we want to have, we want people to form those, those meaningful relationships totally. and yeah. have community. Yeah. Like we don't want to stop people from attaching themselves to those things. Right. Um, However, those are those are like God's provisions for a church, like His provision, the resources that He brings that yeah. make it a great place to be. Yeah. Right. Uh, but but uh, those are not God's vision for the church. Those things should change over time. They're written in sand. They're not written yeah. in stone. Yeah. You know, programs should change and be updated as culture changes and as time yeah. passes. You know. Staff should change out as mm-hmm. people come and go and as God takes them in different places in their life. You know, um, yeah. the place is going to change. It, you know, whether yeah. it's a new a new campus or a new venue or whether it's changing the old campus yeah, and just updating painting. it. Or, <laughs> yeah. yeah I, mean, I mean, those those things should change. Um, here's the thing, though. The, the, the underlying mission of the church should be what is written in stone. You know, I mean, the mission will change its focus, right? Yeah. It will change its uh, execution over time. Mm-hmm. Um, but the identity of the church itself and the mission that God has given it should be more enduring, right? Yeah, totally. Programs change, p- people change, personalities change, place changes throughout different seasons. Yeah. But the en- but the enduring identity. So so here's the and here's the thing. So when people attach their identity at a church to God's provision, when that provision changes, then then they're no longer attached. That umbilical cord yeah. that says, hey, this is my home church begins to loosen and detach. Yeah. And so part of our job as uh, the staff and the leaders of a church is to create is to create language and methods for them to detach that umbilical of identity from God's provisions and mm. reattach it to the vision of the church. Mm. So in other words, why do I feel like this is my home church? Do I feel like this is my home church because I love Michael and Lauren and because they have a great kids program and I yeah. love the view out over the San Fernando Valley yeah. and you know being right here in the foothills of the cross and yeah. or is it because man I am ruthlessly pursuing what it means to unleash a movement of passionate Christ followers who are pursuing God, loving people, serving sacrificially, and sharing Christ. And right. I know that my role in that is essential to that being accomplished in this time and place. Yeah, yeah. Which is our church's mission our statement. Our church's mission statement. Yeah, right. So yes. That Thanks that for clarifying that. Yes. So <laughs> yeah. is is my identity attached to that at this home church? And if that changes, 
well, now this no longer maybe feels like right. my, my place because right. that's now my mission in my life. Yeah. I'm not living a life that's my life plus mission. I'm living my life as mission. Yeah. Right. Um, and so, and so I am uh, as a, as Joe Q attender yeah, yeah, yeah. at Rocky peak, I am just as essential to the accomplishment of Rocky peaks mission yeah. as, as you know, as Neil Johnson, the lead life group pastor is, yes. or as Michael, the lead or Dre is the teaching pastor, yeah. you know? And so my sense of identity is like, I belong to the church, yeah, not the professional pastors belong to the church. And I'm just yeah. kind of here to be a consumer. Totally. If I could poke at one thing, yeah. and, and I don't even know if this is a whole necessarily, just like an interesting aspect of this, which is a lot of times, hmm. Not saying this is how it should be, but how it often yes. is. The the mission statement, the the current vision mm-hmm. for the church, is very closely tied with the lead pastor, the person yes. who's kind of at the helm of the mm-hmm. ship. And a lot of times, and this happened with our church twenty years ago, or not yeah. quite twenty, but a long time ago, um, where you know, new pastor comes in. Here's kind of the mm-hmm. the purpose, the vision. Here's what I think God is calling us to aim at. Yeah. So. If a pastor moves on and the vision changes, I just I kind of see mm-hmm. those two kind of happening together a lot, and that maybe being a good reason. To, yeah, very to often move they on. do ha- happen uh, together. Yeah, uh, and I think that in a lot of ways that's healthy. Mm-hmm. Um, I think a lot of times that we associate that with such a negative because it's it's such a it's such a tempting thing for strong visionary pastors to manufacture vision mm. and to manufacture mission instead yeah. of saying God has a mission, a vision for this church. And it's our job as the pastors to help uncover that mm-hmm. and to be sub- sub- submissive to it as opposed to, right? Yeah. Which is, again, part of the challenge of having a lead pastor who are so often very innovative and very entrepreneurial people. Yeah. It's very hard for them to stay in the same place in terms of, hey, this is still the North Star of our church, mm-hmm. right? And be aware that God could still allow... So evolution, not revolution, Right. So when it comes totally. to wow, church yeah, leadership yeah. change and vision change, it should be evolution, not revolution, right? Yeah. It should be, hey, we're a new pastor is coming in, mm-hmm. and even though we want this guy to be a strong visionary, we want him to have great ability to see more and see before and see around the corner and mm-hmm. be able to lead the church well in that. Um, we also want them to have enough humility to say, hey, I went through this long process mm-hmm. with the church to begin to understand what the church's enduring mission and identity is. Yeah. And I'm not coming in to overhaul that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm coming in to participate in that. And then as God changes that, then mm-hmm. I'll be at the forefront of that change, right? right? But it's not my job to come in and say, I've got a new vision for you. I've yeah. got a new identity for you. Yeah. Right? Uh, and so, you know, don't get me wrong. Gosh, there are times when God says, I want revolution, not evolution. Yeah. I want this to change all the way around. Yeah. It, we need to deconstruct it and reconstruct mm-hmm. it, right? Yeah. But more often than not, a healthy change in, in leadership in that way is going to be evolution, yeah. not not revolution. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's so funny. I've never even realized that I was kind of thinking this way, but I was kind of picturing like, oh, when we end up having like a leadership transition here, I was in my mind, I was like, 
I was picturing a revolution where it's like, mm-hmm. okay, here's the new, here's the, the new vision. Here's the new thing that we're going to be pursuing now that, um, this new, whoever this new pastor is, is, is in the, yeah. is in, in the front seat. Yeah, and for sure. Th- yeah. I'm like, and that creates a ton of churn for people. Yeah. Um, both because here's the thing, the better the job you do at detaching people's identity Right. From the provisions, from the four P's, yeah. and and reattaching it to the church's vision as a whole, which gives them handles yeah. to pick it up and take it with them. Totally, the more churn you're going to create when mm-hmm. there's a revolution that that changes all that. Yeah, totally. both in, from the staff perspective yeah. and from the you know the the larger congregational perspective. Totally, and sometimes it really is the healthiest thing for people to leave. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. To say, yeah. hey, I was attached to the church's vision. That is changing. Yeah. And so now I've got to, uh, you know, I've got to seek God like very intentionally about saying, hey, are you changing my personal part in the church's vision and saying, yeah. hey, this new vision, you need to be a part of this, right? Yeah. This is where I'm taking your life, Yeah. right? Not as a consumer of the church, but as a an essential component of the church. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. That's awesome. Uh, I think I'm going to go to one last question, Mm. um, which is what changes do you see happening in our world kind of in the near future, next five to 10 years Mm. that you think that church leaders should be aware of for the future of ministry? What, what shift is happening in our world? Cause I know that's something that you, you, you've got your, your kind of finger on the pulse of, of culture and kind of where things are going. Is there anything that you see that you think maybe church leaders should kind of have their eyes on? Uh, yeah, so I'm going to caveat this before I get into it uh, and say that that because we're friends um, <laughs> and uh, because I, I feel like I have a feel for, for you know, how the Faith Backstage uh, podcast yeah. audience yeah. Uh, kind of like what, what the audience is, I'm going to give you more like a, the personal answer okay. than I think the, the uh, um, what I would say is like the consultant, the church consultant yeah. answer. Yeah. Uh, that's interesting okay. because that's honestly, I think the personal answer is more interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, and it's, it's kind of like, it's, it's more like, um, it's more like, uh, it's changed from like, how do I prepare churches and equip pastors? Mm-hmm. Like the heart of the question being that to what do I, what do I, what wakes me up at night yeah. that I am, a, that I get nervous about? Oh, interesting. You know what I mean? Like, interesting. Yeah. what do I feel like is maybe not being addressed or is not realizing, or I don't even know if there is a way to address it, Yeah. but it's, it's, it's like, it, it occupies a, a significant place in my heart to think through, uh, what do I, how do I need to learn and grow mm. over, over the next couple decades okay. to be able to still be as faithful and as effective a pastor as, as I need to be. Yeah. So um, so there's a, there's a couple things that come to mind, um, and, uh, feel, I shouldn't have said that because if you want to cut one out, then, it, <laughs> then it's like, everybody was like, where's the next one? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so, but I want to tell you, like, I hold these super loosely. Okay. So, um, uh, so, so one of them is that the apologetic of action has to return. Uh, okay. so what, what I mean by that is that, is that, um, you know, during the during the formative years of the Church Universal, mm-hmm. um, there there was certainly a theological and intellectual uh, component that uh, that occupied a really strong place in the church's uh, identity. Which is like, what does it mean to be a biblical church? What does it mean yeah. to be consistent theologically with the Word of God? Um, Are you talking first century? Yes. Okay. Yeah. I, I'm talking first century um, and throughout the church's history for the most yeah. part. 
So let, we'll say until Western, okay, until Western uh, Christianity. Yeah. I think that there was a much stronger theology, or there was a much stronger uh, apologetic of action. In other words, okay. how do we convince people that our faith mm-hmm. is genuine and real and is what it claims to be, which is a hope for the world, the gospel, the good news, mm-hmm. the resolution of the broken human condition? Yeah. Right? How do we convince people that that is true? Yeah. And it was um, very largely through an apologetic of action. Mm-hmm. Like, well, we love them well. Uh, we take care of their needs. Yeah. Uh, we establish hospitals and, and, and medical care for under, under-resourced communities. We establish schools and educational opportunities for people who don't have them. Yeah. Um, like, we, we act with this apologetic of of love and resourcing in a very yeah. practical way. Yeah. So I'm, I'm not at all talking about a moralistic or, or altruistic perversion of the gospel where yeah. that's all we do, Yeah. yeah right? Yeah. Like that can't be unaccompanied by the spiritual sharing of the gospel in mm-hmm. an evangelical way. Mm-hmm. So I'm not talking about just doing good works, right? Sure. Um, uh, what I'm talking about is that the the main way that we display the authenticity of the gospel is through love and through power, right? Mm-hmm. So you know the lots of scripture that talks about well I didn't come to you with fancy words like yeah. I came with power or, yeah. or like hey you know they have a form of godliness but it really lacks the power, yeah. uh, and so and so what I'm talking about is is an apologetic of action mm-hmm. that lives our faith out in a very visible but and practical way yeah. um, that demonstrates the gospel as opposed yeah. to uh, intellectually arguing for the gospel Got or it. totally um, you know what typical what typically people think of when you say apologetics yes right and Logic. don't don't get me yeah. wrong I mean C.S. Lewis is my most favorite person of all time yeah, yeah. question number one what historical figure Past or present, would you most likely have lunch with? Oh, yes. gosh, C.S. Lewis. Lewis. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Um, incredibly formative in my own, you know, faith journey. But okay. yeah. um, so, 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 let me be super clear. I am all about yeah. uh, the rational apologetic yeah. of the gospel. Um, but I, I think that the way that our culture is is has shifted mm-hmm. for a long period of time, and and that the rate of change is not linear, right? Yeah. Uh, so it's shifting more and more quickly. Yeah. Uh, I, I think that the the apologetic of action concept has to come back real quick. Mm-hmm. I think the church is going to have to get involved more in providing for the physical and uh, and practical life needs of people. Yeah. I think it's going to have to become more involved in education. Yeah. Uh, more involved in preparing people to be successful in life, mm. uh, preparing parents to be able to face a culture that is more and more hostile to a Christian worldview yeah. uh, or even to uh, a faith-centric uh, worldview. Yeah. Um, and, and so I, I think that the church has got to figure out and it's not easy. So, you know, I don't have the answers for it. Yeah. You know, understanding that there's a problem and understanding even the solution is very different yeah. from being able to solve it, you know. Yeah. Uh, and so I, I don't have a solution. And I don't know what all that means yet. Mm. I just feel very strongly that that dynamic has to return in a yeah. powerful way for the for the Western church particularly. I, I really feel that. And for me, it's that kind of que- – I, I think our um, – I, I just recently read – 
um, for potentially an upcoming episode of this podcast. Um, Rob Bell's Love Wins and Francis Chan's oh, Racing, Racing Hell. Hell. Yeah. That's so funny. I just had a conversation about those two books uh, in a in a very unlikely venue. Oh, interesting. <laughs> yeah, not church-related, huh. not church people. Um, I was at a gathering, and uh, it was like just a celebratory thing. Yeah. And I overheard somebody talking about a local business, and I just said, hey, are you, you know this business? I know the people... I know the, the owners. And oh, yeah. so we got into this conversation and uh, that ended up being the topic of discussion Interesting. was, uh, were those two books particularly? Yeah. 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 So, uh, yeah, you know, I think, uh, theologically beliefs wise, I al- align more with a racing hell, but there was mm-hmm. some really, really good, um, points that were made that I think Rob Bell makes in, mm-hmm. in love wins. And yeah. one of which is as modern Christians, we've really just used the, like, where are you going if you die today mm-hmm. question as our method of evangelism. Yeah. That kind of heaven or hell, are you saved or not saved? Oh, Do you yeah. believe or not believe? An anemic truncation of the gospel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and, and that that just kind of calling that out really resonated with me. And, and it, I think a lot of his point was kind of this idea of like heaven now. Like mm-hmm. it's not that we're waiting for heaven someday. We Part of our calling as Christians is to unleash yeah, right. I've come to give moment. you life and life more yes. abundantly, not yeah. like after 70 years and you cash in your heaven insurance policy. Yes. It's like yeah. now, now you're yeah. supposed to be living life more abundantly. Yeah. Yeah. So I, that, 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 um, not theology, that apologetic of yeah. action, I, that really resonates with me with, with, also with, I think Gen Z has this real, is one of the most, um, activism, Centric, uh, centric yeah. like generations so oh, far, yeah. and it, I think that'll resonate really well yes. with them. The last generation was act uh, was was activist uh, was activist aware, mm-hmm. and then the, this generation is very activist. Uh, you know, not just activist aware, but activist centric. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so that's great. I love that. What was the second thing? Yeah. So the the second thing is a little more uh, is a is a little more. Um, Amorphic, but uh, it it centers around what I think has been kind of the the change in how our society and our culture um, relates to information okay. as a whole. Okay, and so you know, so thinking through this um, kind of this journey from pre modern thought to modern thought to post modern thought to where we are now, which is really like a post post modern. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I think that just in a, in a nutshell, without getting too nerdy, yeah. Uh, you know, I think, you know, a lot of pre-modern thought was based um, on informational authority. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, you you establish whether something is real or how much uh, gravity or it has uh, by past information from an authoritative source, yeah. right? So, you know, two monks are having an argument over how many teeth a horse has, mm-hmm. uh, and they go through so many different records and they go to different churches and convents and libraries mm-hmm. searching out the answer for this. And, you know, the stable hand at, you know, after watching this go on for months says, why don't we go out to the barn and look in the horse's mouth? And the guy gets whipped, you know, because that <laughs> is not how you, es- that's not a good method for yeah. establishing uh accuracy and information. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, you know, and then modernists with the Industrial Revolution, that changed very much. It's like, 
the arising of the scientific method, well, late mm-hmm. pre-modernism, really the rise of the scientific method yeah. and observation th- being, you know, drawing a theory, comparing it against experiments. Uh, like you can know things by yeah. observing, by gathering information, information, by processing the data in a rational way yeah. uh, and by coming to a conclusion. And if, and there's no, there's, there's very little moral absolute attached to that conclusion. If the conclusion is wrong, you go back and form another thesis and do right. more experiments, right? Yeah. Um, so there's not like a, an absolute value attachment to the answer, mm-hmm. but there is absolute truth discernible, right? Yes. So you go into the yes. modernist thinking process, which is like ultimately everything can be known yeah. if you get enough information yes. and observe it enough and have a complex enough way of processing the information. Right. You know, and so you, you have the arise of the scientific method, you have the arise yes. of digital computing, you have yeah. so so the way our, our society uh, interacts its relationship with information changed really drastically from pre-modern thought yeah. to modern thought, and then you go to postmodern thought. So, and I think postmodern thought was, and all of them are a reaction against the previous one, this right? Sure. You know, so so postmodern thought is a little bit of a reaction against the purely data and informational driven uh, mm-hmm. philosophy, which is like. Hey, yeah, I get that there's data, and data is valid. We love data, yeah. but there's also personal experience that goes along with it, yeah. right? And so, and so, you know, you gather the data, but don't forget that there's a personal experience that intersects with that data, mm. which may contradict it, or or which may give it additional context, right? Right. And so, let's not get carried away with calling anything absolute truth. Right. Let's say that you know, there's a maybe there's a fifty-fifty importance on the scales of discernment yeah. with data and personal experience, right? Right. right. And so, uh, and so, you know, let's make room for personal experience because. Yeah. Uh, and gosh, it's not hard to see the way the church has evolved through this this change in mindset either, right? It's yeah. like, gosh, the church has been such a jerk about these issues. Right. Like, yeah, maybe you have your facts straight, but like yeah. nobody wants to hang out with you, Christian, because <laughs> right. you just try to argue with them about how their life is wrong. Totally. And how yeah. they're, you it's know. It's all black and white. Yeah, and, yeah, right. Yeah. Yes. And so um, and so this, this modernist thought process becomes a little offensive, yeah. right? Because... Um, like, hey, well, you're not taking into account my personal experience. Yeah. Well, I hear what you're saying, but my kid is, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I love my kid and he's a great kid, yeah. you know? Yeah. And so, uh, or, you know, or my, my, my dad, you know, are you telling me my, my dad wasn't saved? And so now he's in hell, you know, uh-huh. I, gosh, oh, wow. What a hard dynamic to yeah. wrestle through. If you're only talking about the facts, if you're only right. talking about data, right. if you're only, if your apologetic is purely intellectual and is not about like, gosh, let's talk about your journey as well. Yeah. Right. Let's take that into account. Right. And let's really make that not just a token part of how I have a conversation with you, mm-hmm. but a genuine part of how I help you process through truth yeah. and finding truth in your life. Yeah. Right. So that, you know, that's the, the pros and cons of kind of this postmodernist yeah. mindset and how we approach information and our relationship to it. And then now we've moved into this post-postmodern mindset where um, where the, the mindset is more like, hey, if the data conflicts with my personal experience, it has no place in the discussion. Totally. It's, it's offensive and harmful. Yeah. And so it's a, the villainization of pure information. 
right? right? We can only look at data through someone's personal experience. Mm -hmm. And so the scales, you know, so while it was like way in in the factor, you know, the in in pre-modern, it it weighed really strongly with authoritative information, right? Established information. Modernism weighed it really strongly with rational information and the ability to process through data. Post-modernism kind of moved it to a 50-50 informational versus personal experience. You know, I can have my personal truth, you know, don't really try to nail me into an absolute truth. Totally. And now post-postmodernism is like, well, the data is only valuable after it's filtered through a personal experience. Right. Your data is offensive to me. It contradicts my personal experience. So it has no place in the conversation. Yes. It gets villainized. Yes. Um, And so, so here's the thing. So I'm just talking purely about culture. I'm not talking about the church necessarily. Um, Like this is what I see as a cultural trend. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, obviously the digital revolution had a huge play, part to play in that mm-hmm. and how we relate to information as a culture. And we don't own information anymore. It's not a part of us. We just go look it up when we need it right. and forget it when we don't. Right. Um, mm-hmm. So all that has a, a really big impact on this evolution of how we relate to data yeah. as, a, as a society. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I, I think, you know, one of the things that the church really has to struggle with and is going to struggle hard, yeah. I think, in the next 20 years is that um, when we have a conversation with somebody, mm-hmm. um, whether it's somebody inside the church or outside the church, mm-hmm. we're always kind of making an assumption that this person is coming from a modernist mindset, which means we can always find common grounds in fact. Ah, huh. We can always have a rational mm. discussion, therefore we can reach a positive conclusion. Wow. Even if we're starting from different pages, because we're going to operate by the same societal standards of how we process information, we can always at least get to the same page. Even if it's, let's agree to disagree. I was going to say, yes. Right? Yeah. And so we take for granted that the people that we're going to have to present the gospel to are going to be okay with a modernist mindset of I'm going to give you data and facts. Here's why the Bible is real. Here is why my faith is real. Yeah. Here is what makes sense about a biblical worldview. Yeah. Um, The challenge, though, is that that is only accessible to someone who's coming from a modernist, or at least an appreciation. They don't have to be a modernist thinker, but they at least have to have an kind of an accession that modernist thinking processes are valuable and valid as opposed to post-postmodern where it's like, don't bring your information in here. That's offensive to me, right? Uh, And so I I think that the church is going to have to figure out how to deal with not at all being on the same page of what it looks like to have a discussion with someone that you're trying to help find a way to understand the blessing of God's principles and how your life will thrive under the leadership of, of the yeah. gospel. Yeah. So like, you know, it's, it's hard to even put into words yeah. yet um, because we're just starting to see some of the implications of it. But even, even thinking through pastors who are coming out of seminary, seminary is, uh, is primarily still a very modernist, mm-hmm. Um, a modernist method of educating people. Yeah. 
right? And so you'll you'll come out of you'll come out of whatever higher education system you utilize. Yeah. Um, thinking through, still thinking through, still currently thinking through, a primarily modernist mindset, which is like, hey, if you want to know an answer, go look for information. Yeah. Uh, and and as much as you can think about it objectively. Think about it objectively. Right. Then start applying relativistic or experiential, uh, you know, framework to it right. to help you understand how to present it in a genuine and authentic way to the person you're talking to. Yeah. Right. But when the culture shifts so much that now uh, edu- even educational uh, mm-hmm. processes are not founded in a modernist mindset, then like there's going to be no shared system of coming to a similar conclusion. Totally. And so it makes it hard. Like, it, you know, it used to, it, it, for the last 10 years, it's been like, okay, how do we have a rational conversation that diffuses mm-hmm. enough of the things that trigger mm-hmm. our personal experiences right. for us to come to shared common ground? But I, I think, you know, that ability to say having a rational discussion, even that I think will pass away. Yeah. In this post postmodern yeah. thinking framework, yeah. I, well, okay. So I don't want to suggest that I could uh, summarize all of that in a sentence, but I, I, a sentence came to mind, and I want to try it out. Is in our approach to ministry, do we need to move from the analytical uh, to the anecdotal, from the like the um, the statistical hmm. to the anecdotal, and in, in sharing just our own testimony and our own experience and our own heart. Um, in the way that God has loved us and expressed his love for us and, and mm-hmm. the way in our personal testimony and journey from kind of from that more logical, reason, reasonable uh, approach. Yeah, gosh, that's a, I mean, that's a it's a hard it's a hard dynamic to figure out because I don't think there's an answer for every situation. Yeah, that really uh, applies well. Um, but but yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, I, I think that's been, I think that's been a, a dynamic that's been growing in a really positive way in, uh, faith awareness or church, church, um, church mindset for a long time, which is like, Hey, you can always argue with evidence. You can't argue with my experience. Right. Right. Uh, and so that's, that's kind of always been a little bit of a, I know this is going to sound super unspiritual, but an evangelical tool, mm, right? Yeah. Like I can give you all of the evidence in the world, but you can still argue with it. But if I yeah. tell you, here's what's hap- here's what happened to me and here's how I felt about it yeah. and here's how it impacted my life. Yeah. You can't argue with that. Right. Right. It's, 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 um, and so, you know, so in some ways it becomes more effective because it's like in, in the most literal sense, that's what a testimony is. You can't yes. give testimony about something you didn't mm. personally witness or experience. That's what a witness is. And so yes. returning it to its literal connotation there, huh. yeah. you know, it, that's exactly what it is. Is like yeah. my life changed. My life was impacted because I followed these principles that I found in God's word or right. that someone explained to me or whatever. Right. Here's my relationship with God and here's right. how it impacts me and my family. You know what I mean? Yeah. That's what a witness is. Hey, or, or it doesn't have to necessarily be, you know, first person. It can be yeah. third person. Like, Hey, my kid or my aunt or my friend or, sure. you know, yeah. whatever it is, but, but you have to have personally experienced it for it to be a legitimate witness yeah. or testimony, you know? Yeah. And that resonates well with me just 
because of the like origin moment of of our faith in Jesus being witnesses at the tomb, you know, like right. they're, they're being the original like testimony of what God is doing. Yes. Yeah. And so, uh, so, you know, so that's kind of like the, the yes, but yeah, or the yeah. short answer. Yes. Yeah. Um, for sure. Um, th- I think the other side of it is though, and, and here's, here's so much I'm self-aware enough yeah. to realize that my personal perspective, yeah. uh, shades my values pretty strongly. Right. Mm. So, you know, do I find something holy mm-hmm. about having a rational, intellectual way uh-huh. to address the search for truth? Uh-huh. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Am I going to say nine times out of 10, that is a superior method that will take you closer to finding the truth, yeah. uh, you know, in, in your relationship with God and biblical, you know, accuracy uh, and theological integrity for yeah. sure. Yeah. You know what I mean? But I'm also self-aware enough to know that that's because that's my personal dynamic. That's what I understand. Yeah. That's what I value. Yeah, totally. And that's where I have seen it work the best. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I think that there are things still to discover. Yeah. I think that there are whole new ways of, of thinking and approaching things that God will give to his followers and to the church that allow them to become relevant yeah. in a culture that thinks very differently without giving up the integrity of yes. absolute truth. Abs- yeah. I-, I was going to say absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, I-, I have hope for the future. I really do. Yeah. It's, it's very easy. I think Christians in particular, I find are very doom and gloom about, about mm. where a culture is going. And there are plenty of reasons to be, but I don't know that there, each generation has their own, uh, new way of, expressing being that cultural bridge of from that that from the early Christ followers to now and and um uh bridging that like the 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 uh uh what, what's the phrase never changing truth ever changing world and, yeah and, and 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 presenting that never changing truth which that word truth then gets into kind of more the more you know uh uh factual you know yeah right thinking. again like that's what I'm saying is that's why yeah. it's become so difficult because even your language is creating yeah. It like there's a different definition of truth now, yeah. In a postmodern mindset and a post postmodern mindset, and they're getting yeah. much much farther away from what you say when what you mean when you say truth, right? You know what I mean? Yeah. And so you're 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 going to we're going to get into the challenge of using the same labels, right? That mean radically different things, yeah. And have radically different processes mm-hmm. for resolving difference in perspective and agreement, yeah. Totally. Man, I don't want to stop the train, but I have to. This has been great. Uh, so grateful for you just for sharing your wisdom for, for two hours. This has, been awesome. this has been awesome. And I'm sure our listeners have been blessed by it. This is, well, this I is sure great. hope so. Yeah. I know because I'm a nerd, the things that I'm passionate about often can feel obtuse or other yeah. people can feel like, yeah, I just needed a couple sentences and that was enough for me and I get where you're going. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there I having interviewed a lot of people, it's so funny seeing just the difference in personalities where some people are very happy to just say something in two or three sentences and those episodes are the ones that are 58 minutes, you know what I mean? And it's like I've got all my questions and well, I guess that's all I have, you know, prepared. And we could have probably talked for another I I have a whole section about church uh, staff <laughs> management that we didn't even touch on. So right maybe, on. maybe a part two in a year or so or whatever. Sounds but, good. Um Tony, grateful for your time and thank you for uh, for being here and spending uh, having a conversation with me. Absolutely. It's a blessing to be here, Joey, and I really appreciate the way that you approach this and the value you're creating for people who are 
trying to find the right way to do the right thing in their life and their faith. Yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you.